Hey, Raul. What's going on? Hey, George. How are you? Pretty good. Uh, did you know that we are sponsored? Like legitimately sponsored? Yeah, we are. Here like we... people that have reached out to us to, oh, yeah. to be mentioned and talked Great about? Great companies, by the way. So yeah. our first one is 511tactical.com. It's the holiday season. Like any other time of year, there are several missions you'll face to survive. Getting through the holidays takes more than the right mindset. It also takes the right gear. Mm-hmm. If you go to 511tactical.com right now, they have all your holiday missions laid out for you. Whether it's the holiday party, deck of the halls, losing that holiday weight, or a snowball fight, they have all the gear you need to uh, handle those missions and survive. Right if, now, I'm looking at the deck of the halls. What if you like used all of them? Wow, at that's once. A that's a lot of gear. <laughs> That'd be cool, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, my favorite right now is the Defender Flex jeans and then the peak shirts. Listen, 5.11 has everything you need, every gear you can think of they have. Everything from pouches to bags to wallets to shoes to socks to underwear. They have it all. So you can go in there and get a whole new wardrobe for the holidays and save 15%. You want to know how you save 15%? Tell me. Using code FIELD15. That's F-I-E-L-D-1-5 at checkout. So listen, go to 5.11.com, fill your card up with all holiday gifts, and use Field 1-5 to save 15% off your holiday. They have everything, right? Like you said, clothes. They have holsters. They have gun belts. Battle belts, everything. They have boots. I mean, you could get a whole outfit there and just... I know I've been in some of the stores, and yeah, they're, they're pretty well laid out and organized. And they oh, have yeah. gun parts and magazines. They have a bunch of cool stuff, so... Oh, yeah. Save that 15, huh? Hell, yeah. <laughs> Our next sponsor is Hardhead Veterans. They uh, have a ballistic helmet. It's NIJ Level 3 Alpha approved with the above-the-ear or high-cut design. The Hardhead Veterans above-the-ear helmet is offers the ideal ballistic helmets for law enforcement, military, and private security contractors. <laughs> the ATE Gen 2 ballistic helmet shell is made from DuPont Kevlar, and their high-cut helmet offers significant weight savings with the ATE weighing in at only 3 pounds. Oh, that's like a, a small head exercise versus the usual that's one, all. seven, eight oh, yeah. pounds. Those things are heavy. Oh, yeah. Especially with that high cut, you know. You, yeah. I, I love that because you get, you know, wear your... Uh, your ear pro. Your ear pro, yeah. more comfortable. For sure. They we also, also have a code for them. But Hardheads also has a, a different uh, helmet too, right? They have the non-ballistic ones for like soft missions and rappelling and all these other I like activities. so. I'm not sure. I have to check on the website. Huh. But right now we have a code, uh, Fieldcraft, and you save $15 off your entire order, and your minimum purchase is $100. So use code Fieldcraft at checkout, $15 off your entire order, minimum purchase has to be $100. So that's a nice little savings yeah. on a helmet, you know? That's pretty good. Yeah. Our next sponsor is Killcliff.com. Killcliff's pretty cool, man. We I know we drink it here. And we have our own little fridge, and every time we have guests over, we have them try it, and everybody oh, yeah. says the same thing. It's a good drink. Yep. Uh, it's pretty minimal in the sense of ingredients. It tastes great. And then they, I like that they have their, like, series. I've been watching you hit uh, the series of drinks throughout our, our morning workouts. Uh, so w- what's that series that you run there? So the first thing I use, like, at their pre-workout is their Ignite, and it's more of, like, the pre-workout. So they have... All that, those natural flavors, they have about 150 grams of uh, caffeine mm. just to get you started in the just morning. Just a little boost, huh? Yeah, they have uh, cherry limeade, fruit punch, lemon berry, everything you, I mean, all the good flavors they have here. They do have interesting flavor combinations. I'll give them that. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And it's different, you mm-hmm. know? For sure. Uh, the next thing I take, my second drink is the Endure. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like that recovery. It's non-carbonated. Um, you know, they have, it's kind of for your sustained endurance throughout your workout. 
Yeah. So our workout's about 45 minutes. So throughout that workout, I drink that whole bottle, and it kind of keeps me going. I get more reps, and I'm not that tired at the end. Yeah, it's like it's like minimal carbs too, so it's giving you just enough fuel yep. per session, right? And, and from what I read, it's like healthy carbs. Yes. You know, it's not going to stick with you, but while you're yeah. burning them, you know, yeah, it'll just keep burning them. And my favorite one is that uh, Fieldcraft, <laughs> Fieldcraft. That uh, well, you should have a Fieldcraft recovery. We should just drink. get our own like, yeah. label on the these. Main, the how many we drink a day? We, we drink so. If you looked at our garbage can, folks, you would see just. <laughs> Empty kill cliffs, um, all of them. From, oh, yeah. From the Ignite, the Endure, and the Recover. You know, in that Recover, they have uh, B vitamins, electrolytes. I think it's 15, uh, uh, 15 yeah. calories, and they have about 50 grams of, uh, of caffeine. So just enough to get you recovered, get you back into the, mm-hmm. in, into the game. Yeah, those are good. So the one that I want to talk about and mention is Triarch Systems. That's T-R-I-A-R-C Systems. Oh, com. I'm sorry. Uh, our kill cliff uh, uh, coupon code is survival10, survival10. Sorry to cut you off. I <laughs> forgot to put that in there. Oh, that's all right. We need people to know that yes. we have these codes for them so they can get <laughs> in on all the juicy flavors that we've been getting. Uh, so back to Triarch Systems. Triarch Systems, they, they put together such great products. And ever since we got ours, uh, our, our carbines, we've been taking them to the courses. I actually ran mine this weekend, and it rained both days. Uh, <laughs> for the carbine portion, I, I always make drills for our guys and they're always asking questions about the gun. Well, what gun is that? Why does it run that way? And it's just like, look, it's a good product from a good company and here, try it. I mm-hmm. put it in their hands. They get to shoot it. The exact setup that came through changed nothing. Cause I want them to experience the gun as it came. And it's really cool. It's really cool to see people pick it up and then they get excited about it. Oh, and then yeah. they ask questions, you know? And and it's just uh, like the carb is so solid. You know what I mean? It yeah. doesn't rattle and make noises. Yeah. And, you know, I hate to say this, but I haven't cleaned mine since I got it. I've done like a <laughs> deep clean on it. You know, yeah. I'll wipe the bolt down. Yeah, but yeah. never, I haven't had any malfunctions on that gun. Yeah. Well, this range had mud, right? So there's mud splashing back after these, after uh, like shooting targets a little bit closer and moving towards the target. So they like, I had mud inside of the bowl like on the bowl and then getting into the chamber and it, i still haven't cleaned it i think it's been about five thousand rounds it's still doing its thing it's still good i'm gonna see how long i can go before the mm-hmm. carbon gets built up i'm gonna say yeah. about ten thousand rounds but their their stuff is clean and it, good guns clean themselves almost not literally like nothing wipes it down but with these the way it moves the way it opens how the mechanics work helps keep gunk out of it oh, by yeah. itself so it's we've kind cool. of been putting them to the test everything <laughs> from their pistols yeah to the carbines, you know, we have two truck guns, and I have a uh, what was that? What one I have a fourteen point five? Yeah, you have a slightly bigger one. Yeah, it's it's just I love shooting it. It's great. So if you're in in the uh, market looking for a nice carbine or a a custom Glock, they have nineteen elevens as well, or you can build your own. Use code Fieldcraft and save five percent off your entire order. That's they- they legitimately have really great builds. Oh, yeah. Because we got to build our, our guns. Yep. And uh, I know Mike and I have similar builds. He's got a really cool finish on his. Mine's just black. And, yeah, it was it was cool to see the spreadsheet. Like, whoa, they really do cover tons of great products. And they've done their research as far as what products are going to go into their builds, which was impressive because mm-hmm. then we got these choices. And, yeah, it's like one or two choices from one or two different companies, but it's like the best oh, out yeah. there. Again, my stuff hasn't failed. Everything's worked great. Yeah, so that's pretty much all for our sponsors. On this episode of the podcast, we have Emily Hill. She's a retired Apache pilot. Um, she's also known formerly on Instagram as Gun Bunny Actual. 
So enjoy this episode. Emily, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. How nervous are you right now? Well, let's just say I would rather right now be naked in the middle of the fucking helmet than be <laughs> sitting here talking to you. I'm nervous. You've done podcasts before, though, right? You, you... I, I've had a, a cup exposure to like one or two, but nothing as big and famous as yours. Have you done a post-retirement podcast? I did. I did one with Mike Ritland. I did a mic drop episode shortly after after I got out. That's all. Mike's a good dude. I'll be on his podcast in January in... Uh... Texas, big shout out to Mike Ritland. Absolutely. What's his podcast called? It's called Mike Drop, M-I-K-E, Drop. Awesome. And absolutely, I went out to his ranch in Texas and got to see the kennels and everything he does with the dogs. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. I don't know that I want to sit in that leather chair for four hours again, but it was a good time. Swass. Yes. It's possible. (laughs) Um, So one, I want to say thank you for coming out. Um, Big shout out to Vigilance Elite. Absolutely. Uh, for, and Sean and Katie for allowing us to come into this studio and record. Uh, I've been in lots of studios, skill set studios, awesome. This takes the cake. This is like, this reminds me of team life downrange. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing, amazing studio. So big shout out. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Konnichiwa. Um, that's not thank you in Japanese. That's like hello. <laughs> hello. Um, so I've done recently a few podcasts with females and it's it might sound sexist because i'm isolating females this way but i think it's super important to highlight what females are doing in the military uh we had we had the first female ranger school graduate Mm -hmm. on recently we had uh jesse a canine handler that was attached to the infantry and so it's kind of funny to me because people now are becoming more aware of what females are doing in the military and combat arms, but it's nothing new, right? Um, what people don't know is females have always been integrated really since the beginning of time, but in recent recorded history in World War II, female operators were uh, operating with the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, yes. and doing some crazy shit. And you are a retired Apache pilot. Yes. Phenomenal. I, I just, that gives me, I get chills and goosebumps about it because like one, I wanted to be an Apache pilot um, when I was very young in the military because there's only one reason you would be in an Apache and that's to kill bad guys. That, that's what you do. And you are one of a few, there's not many females in the Apache program, um, but I want to highlight your experiences and talk about uh, the things that you went through in the military and then after service. And I really want to talk about your story. And it, that story begins obviously uh, with the very beginning, uh, the, the time in which you were raised and then you wanted to come into the military. Let's start there. You know, for, first I, wa- I want to say, I, I appreciate you saying that we've been integrated, you know, since, since the beginning of time, because so many, you're right, so many people don't know that. And one of the hero stories that I always start with with people is, you know, during the invasion, there was a female military police uh, sergeant who got the Silver Star. I remember that. Yeah, and was in like the turret. In, the, in the turret and then yeah. dismounted yep. and was popping guys that were in the ravine after she, you know, so there were, you know, from, from, from the start, there were girls out there, um, you know, protecting, protecting their brothers and sisters on the ground and, and, 
and doing high speed stuff. And I, I definitely am privileged, very privileged, A, to um, have been able to successfully make it into the program, become a pilot, and B, you know, belong to a nation that allows me to go do those things because mm -hmm. I want to and not wear a head to toe niqab and um, be restricted in any way. Uh, but I was I was born and raised in Salem, Oregon, and the Northwest is is amazing. It really is. We call it the Pacific Wonderland for a reason because it's it really is a magical kind of place to grow up when you have the opportunity to walk outside your front door no matter where you live and be in the woods and the rivers and the mountains and see all of that stuff. But I was also raised. You know, we were just dirt poor and food stamps and free lunch tickets and broken family and. Uh, I was actually born out of wedlock um, to a young mom and those kind of, the, the struggles that go along with that no matter who you are or mm -hmm. where you're from. And then um, as as I grew up, uh, you know, and, I, and I've spoken about it before, um, I suffered years and years of um, very traumatic sexual abuse at the hand of a close male family member. And so I think when you, at least for me, Early on, I, I believe truly that that kicks in a survival instinct um, at a very young age that wouldn't otherwise exist. And so I became, when I turned 15, I became pregnant and my family was essentially non-functional. You know, my, my mother suffered from severe depression, my biological mother, and wasn't, wasn't present for, for much of my life. And, you know, my only male figure in my life was the one who was raping me. <laughs> and so it, it just, I, it required a fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And so I'm pregnant. What, what am I going to do? And I had to make a decision to put my son up for adoption. I withdrew from high school, got my GED and kind of grounded out. You know, I, I was 16 when my son was born. And so for the next couple of years, with a GED in a kind of impoverished area. And that time, you know, um, we're talking about time of the spotted owl and all of that. So the, the agricultural and logging industry was suffering. And so the economy was suffering and there weren't many opportunities, but I hung sheetrock. I worked at a pizza place. I, you know, got my own apartment. I just tried to, to scrabble, you know, a living together until I finally realized, looking around me at the 40-year-old women working the same minimum wage jobs that I was working, that there was no, I, was, I wasn't going to make it. And my, my true, there were two reasons that I was driven, driven to go to the recruiter's office. First and foremost, I wanted to be like TC for Magnum PI. Like that, that was my hero. I wanted to fly helicopters and do island hoppers. And, you know, it's funny now when... We see the kids that we influence now who find us on Instagram or find us on YouTube and they get to see this life and that's the dream, you know, they, uh, when they look at us and for those of us that didn't grow up in that era, I remember we, we spoke earlier about you having that cut out in your notebook, you mm -hmm. know, of the special forces and I wanted to, you know, fly helicopters and He's from, the guy who had the weird mustache that yeah, flew the, the little bird? The, the black guy that flew the little oh, bird. Oh, the black guy. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Magnum P.I. that he I watched. Were, he was a former SEAL, by the way. I don't know if anybody knew that. 
and he actually continued to like fly around, like he flew Hueys and stuff. I found out from an old Vietnam guy. That's so cool. In in Hawaii. That's awesome. And so, but the second reason was, I, I wanted to trade. I wanted a trade. Um, I knew that if I went to the military, I didn't care about the college money. I really had no intention of continuing my education in that direction. But I knew if I went in the military, they would teach me how to drive a truck, fix a truck, be a carpenter, be an electrician. You could learn those trades in the Army. I went and took the ASVAB. And at that point, I, I was 19 when I finally went to the recruiter's office. They sent me to take the ASVAB. And I'd been out of school for a few years by then. And, you know, I didn't go very far in my, in my education. But I think my GT score was like 138. Or, but I didn't know what that meant. And I went back to the recruiter's office, but the limb fact, the limiting factor for me then, back then, not everybody got in the military. It wasn't necessarily the way it is now where you, if you walk in with a pulse, you can get in. Because I had a GED, I had to wait for a slot. Like that, disc, that region for that recruiting station was only allotted so many GED slots to, to join. And so, in, in hindsight, they were kind of telling me like, well, maybe we'll let you in. And now knowing that because my GT score and everything else, like I could have gone to do anything I wanted to do. But they gave me three options and it was cook, truck driver, or light wheel mechanic. And I selected the light wheel mechanic um, to, to go fix trucks. And I had never been, um, I'd never been on an airplane. I had never been out of the Pacific time zone. I had never gone anywhere or done anything. Our vacations consisted of tent camping because no Disneyland, no, you know, those were the things we did for recreation, fishing and hunting. And got on the plane and went to Fort Leonard Wood and went to, I just asked for the first thing smoking. You know, they're like, when do you want to go? Asked for the first thing smoking, signed up, went back to my mother and my family and was like, oh, by the way, I joined the army and I leave in, 15, in 14 days. Wow. How old were you at the time? I was 19. I just turned 19. You know, I think it's interesting that when you're growing up in a blue collar family and home and then how attracted you are to technical skill sets and understand that trades or technical skills uh, is so important in like your survivability or your longevity. Yes. Because if you have a trade, you have something that you could use for the future, as opposed to have like a, I'm going to go into an academic background or, and I'm, you know, I'm going to do my best to do something academically, but that's no guarantee. But in a blue collar living situation, which I grew up in, um, you, you see that as something as stable and something as long-term. Yes. And, and um, you wanted to do that and you chose that skill set because it was something you could use after the, yes. the fact. And from the time that I had my son, I had to formulate and execute a plan. There was no one helping me. I had to actually get a guardian ad litem because I was underage and I was signing my son over for adoption and my family was completely against it. And they were, my mom was just completely apathetic, you know, because of her situation. And I had to pick a family for my son. I had to make those decisions at 15 years old. And then as I, you know, tried, went out, went out into the world and saw that, you know, I'm not cute enough to get by on my looks and I would have been a stripper if I could have, but. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you didn't become a stripper. <laughs> well, they turned me down. I auditioned. They, they turned <laughs> me down. Uh, 
but that was I, that was the I'm thinking of the long term plan. You're absolutely right. I wasn't thinking of this initial three year enlistment was my first enlistment. I just knew that I could get a job at Jiffy Lube when I got done and, you know, maybe work my way up into fleet maintenance, which I eventually did go do. And not only did I get there, got through basic training and went to AIT, I loved it. I genuinely loved the job and discovered that I'm not Asian, but I discovered that when I open these manuals and see these, you know, I, I've very little education. I don't know like algebra. I don't know any of those things. And, but I could see a wiring diagram or a hydraulic schematic and they moved to me. Like they just made hmm. absolute and perfect sense to me. And I could just look at a truck and f hear a problem or see a problem. And I was good at it. Well, your GT score is a replica or uh, it's a uh, your mechanical representation your, yeah. of your uh, yeah. inclination for that. That's, that's awesome. And then you go... You, you you joined in 1996. Correct. And then Bosnia is going off at the time, right? Correct. And then you deploy straight to Bosnia. Straight to Bosnia. I got my my when I got my assignment papers and it said Germany. I mean that's mind blowing to me. I don't have a I don't have a passport. I remember I'm playing. I never left country. And you get like the crisp you know the magic ticket. It's the golden ticket. Mm -hmm. Like my first duty assignment is Germany, and they and so I get on a plane. Um, and land in Germany and report to my unit. It's a military police unit, which I, means nothing to me at the time. I'm Humvee mechanic, essentially, at that, at that point in time. And I get assigned to a military police unit, and the, I get there, and I report to the commander, and it's a staff sergeant. It's an E6. And I'm like, what does this mean? Well, he's the rear detachment commander, mm -hmm. and it's all a rear detachment. And the unit is, is forward in, in Bosnia, Camp Comanche in, um, in Bosnia. And they're like, you're going to Bosnia. I went to CIF and drew all this gear that I'd never seen and didn't know. And it's the old green puffy winter sleeping bag and all of, you know, this old- TA-50. All this TA-50 yeah. old school stuff. And, you know, still spit shine and boots and all the stuff that we do. And they put me on a bus with a bunch of other, you know, late, late deployers. And I show up and in at Camp Comanche where we were where we were at, we were on the airfield there. And so it was like half of the airfield had the helos and the other half they had tent cities set up in. And you know, it was the sh the shower tents, the shower shitters, you know, where you got like a shower curtain between you and the mm -hmm. dude next to you and you get your M sixteen between your knees, like taking a taking a dump and we were we had no, you know, there's no brown and root, there's no KBR, there's no, all the luxuries that we have now. And because the, the, the chow tent was so far from us and our op temple, because we were with the MPs, and so they were legitimately out convoying constantly, 24-hour mm. ops. Um, it was sitting on a, a stool next to the Humvee and breaking out an MRE and eating it and then, you know, getting back, getting back at it. And pooping a week later. And pooping a week later. Mm. And getting woken up at two in the morning. There's no rest cycle. There's no none none of that. You know, a truck came back in. It got it hit because um, there was still a ton at that at that time. Although there was no um, combat per se, they had a ton of UXO. You know, ton of unexploded ordnance that they were dealing with. They had mines that had still not been cleared. There were still hostilities, and they're out. You know, convoying with you know 50 cal Mark 19. You know, doing patrols and securing areas. And it was, uh, I don't know if 
a lot of the listeners will be familiar, but uh, Operation Eagle is when they started unearthing the mass graves. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Well, the the MPs would go guard those sites while the NATO teams would go in and do the exhumation. Yeah. And then we had the reefer trailers next to our tents where they would keep wow. the remains uh, while they were doing all all of that. So although it wasn't, you know, there's no incoming, no outgoing, and none of those, you know, threats and stuff that we that we deal with, no, no door kicking. Um, as a as a young private fresh in the army and had never seen been exposed to any of of that stuff it was i loved it i mean did I you loved it. At, at that time you know obviously there's females doing a whole bunch of stuff um did you recognize any issues with male female sexism or any kind of issues like that early on my one my one uh, it happened in Bosnia and Comanche on that first rotation. There were a couple of female MPs. There were um, there were a couple, no other female mechanics. So we, you know, besides the admin folks, we had very few females in that in that unit. Two twelfth MP company, seventy ninety third MP battalion. But I'll tell you, here's here. Every week, the operators would have to bring in their vehicle for service. And the couple of females that we had were typically would go in to get their truck worked on and bat their eyelashes. And then they, instead of doing their operator level maintenance, they would go sit down and, you know, read a book while the guys, you know, took their tires off and greased all the grease fittings and mm. did all, all this stuff. I got assigned a babe. That was the other, the other great thing about them, that deployment. There was no time for hazing or, you know, here, go sweep the floor or do whatever. The op temple was high enough that even as a private, there were like toolbox manuals, go. Mm -hmm. Here's your bay. You know, come see us if you need help. But you've got to be able to operate autonomously and as a PFC. Well, the females would bring their truck in to me for their service. And I'd be like, here's a jack. Here's a grease yeah. gun. And one of them went and complained. And I got a counseling statement from my E5 for making another female do her job. Really? And I'm, absolutely. Because this is operator level maintenance. Operator level, dash 10, 10 level maintenance. This is the stuff PMCS. you would do. This is the stuff you would do on your own truck. Preventative maintenance. Preventative maintenance. Greasing the grease fittings, ensuring the air pressure is complete, is correct, checking the fluid levels while I'm pulling parts and you know yeah. doing the 20 level maintenance my mm -hmm. my maintenance to actually fix the truck whatever you've written up replacing parts so that exposure at that where i was so where i was so excited and really loving it and really enjoying my job that was a it was a big downer like right, why am i i'm like i'm getting corrective action for this so that put a bad taste in my mouth and but you know he was probably banging that chick. Uh, there's 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 no talent. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. But that was that was frustrating mm. for sure. So you fast forward and now we're getting into the GWAT and you're still you're an NCO now. Yes. Uh, you're a staff sergeant and you're doing uh, combat operations in Iraq. Correct. And how was that experience in you know comparing bosnia to to iraq and the GWAT? completely different Com completely different i by the time i was a staff sergeant and i was in iraq 0507 i was assigned to an engineer and for a lot of people they hear engineer and sometimes they think sapper and they're not really familiar with the different 
levels that the engineers operate at. I would, but I was in a construction battalion that consisted of two parts. We called them the horizontal and the vertical. So the horizontal guys were the road crews, the graders and the scrapers and the dozers, and those were the guys that would go out, they were doing crater repair. Mm. You know, they were cutting new roads, uh, doing things like that. And then you had the vertical platoon, which was your plumbers, electricians, um, carpenters. Wow. So our job in Iraq in that time was to go out and build cops. We, so you go out to the middle of nowhere and we're assigned to build a cop for the, either an infantry platoon or like the IA and the IP. And it's a forward outstation. It's right? a forward outstation, combat outpost, uh, you know, out the places with names like Gator Swamp and Lion's Den and mm. these little places. And it was kind of a cookie cutter construction project. You know, you put up the HESCOs, you build them a gun range, you build them a motor pool, you, you establish the towers, they build the toilets, and they build the living, the, uh, the like the bee huts, essentially, mm -hmm. that the Iraqis promptly like shit in the corner and steal the air conditioners and, you know, they just wreck it. But we would go live in those places. Mm -hmm. So you go stay in those places and... We, we were, but we were based at Camp Liberty, Camp Victory. Everybody knows that's kind of the main big base at Baghdad. And that was where I saw the real, kind of that juxtaposition between the two worlds. Because we would come into Reset and people, where you go to Burger King and you could buy a big screen TV and the PX and an Xbox or whatever was out at the time. And there's bus routes and you know, people complaining because Burger King was out of tomatoes today. And you go to the cat, the DFAC and Brown and you know, KBR has dudes that will like chop fresh pineapple for you. And so compared to my initial experience in Bosnia, I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Like, and people walking around without body armor, like their weapons just, you know, they couldn't be able to get at their, yeah. you know, their long your gun. Your magazine detached from your gun inside of a pouch. Inside inside of a pouch, slung, slung on your back yeah. like this this tight. And we we had our motor pool there and we would get reset. But then we would go out in these huge convoys. And if anyone who's ever been uh, deployed has seen an engineer convoy, it's ludicrous. Mm -hmm. It's huge and the bigger you are, the bigger a target you are. The exposure is enormous because we don't have the maneuverability. If we go into a road, we would frequently go down these roads that were marked off as green and then find out that the locals had thrown a bunch of garbage in and had blocked, blocked these surface roads off. And we can't back these convoys up and you're just in a kill box. And so it was very stressful and my job was we, we have what we call the Hemet Wrecker, which is the Army's version of a tow truck. It's just a large truck that's got the winch boom on the back and um, the ability to tow vehicles out. And I, my position in the convoy was the last, um, the last vehicle. So in the event that we had an, not just you know, a combat incident, but just a breakdown, you know, tire blowout, whatever the instance was, it was my job to respond to that so we could get the convoy moving again. And it was... It was 0507 in Baghdad. I mean, it wasn't a safe place to be driving around. And we're not operators. We're mechanics and engineers. And, you know, we all qualified with our M16 A2 like six months ago. And other than that, have no zero combat training. Of, oh, like a bullshit IED lane that you do 
um, you know, before you go in and it's like this canned dirt road where they put like a pallet and a tire mm -hmm. and it's not representative of driving around the streets of Baghdad at all unprepared for the amounts of trash that are on the side of the road and that um, we even when we would go out many times because of maintenance issues we get stuck out you know we'd be out past curfew so the sun's coming up and people are coming out and it's a very stressful place to be and I had a, an IED strike in particular where the lead vehicle got smacked we were at that point you know most of the guardrails had been removed at that point uh, for people that aren't aware they were utilizing the guardrails. Eventually, when they stopped bearing the IEDs, they were utilizing the guardrails mm -hmm. to, you know, to blow from the from the sides in. And the lead vehicle, we were coming off an overpass on Tampa, and so we're up on the overpass, which is even worse because now we're at eye level with every rooftop everywhere. It's daytime. It's daytime, and because we're on that overpass and I'm constricted by the roadway, I cannot move beyond the convoy to go. And we're just stuck. And I have no way of knowing what's going on. Oh, because by this time, I didn't have a radio. I carried a man pack that because the convoy was so big, I literally did not have comms with anyone greater than like two vehicles mm -hmm. away from me. So it's a very, it's terrifying. It was a terrifying feeling to be, you don't know who around you on the phone is about to hit the button that's gonna be your button. And what do I do? But I can't appear scared because I'm a staff sergeant. My E4 is sitting next to me and I have to pretend like I'm confident and know what's going on. And that was, that was kind of the environment that I operated in. And then you roll back into these little cops or wherever you were staying the night and burn shitters. You know, there's no running water. Um, there, there's just no no services. We were um, um, food was getting log packed into us like once a week. Hot chow, you know, when the truck shows up with the hot chow, and you're eating fucking mermite bacon sandwiches for a week because mm -hmm. that's the only. Sa <laughs> I would always make them bring me Coors Near Beer, and I'd write <laughs> my name on them. I'm like, if anybody, Odules? no, it was the Coors Near Beer. Oh, it was a Coors oh, Near Beer. Oh, so good. Hmm. And I'd eat it in the morning with my fucking cereal, and I just look like, and all the infantry. So we were on it, and we. Had, we're staying with the infantry platoon at these places often, you know, they just find a bunkhouse for us. The good thing about being with the engineers, you know, you'd be in these little Iraqi um, compounds and, you know, with the courtyard and the outbuildings and the engineers would go in one of those rooms, punch a wall out, put an air conditioner in it, build bunks three high. And that was where we lived. We'd, I'd be on a bunk above Pagan and have some dude sleeping above me, sleeping on plywood. We go up on the roof and steal their, you know, sleeping mats and mm -hmm. put them on the plywood. So completely integrated. Completely. Wow. Completely. I didn't know that. And the medic, um, who was assigned to the infantry platoon, he actually took me aside one day and said, you know, do you ha do you have adequate services here, you know, to care care for yourself? And I was like, dude, are you trying to find a real polite way to ask me if I clean my fucking vagina out here? Because, mm -hmm. yeah, I clean my fucking vagina. The engineers threw three sheets of plywood up for me against one of the HESCOs. And I so had you're a figuring that out on your own. It, oh, there's yes. not like protocol or doctrine to integrate females. It's at the unit level, like based on, I'm, I'm assuming, situational dependent. C completely. Wow. Completely. My friend Mary Ward, she was one of the carpenters. We started taking incoming at, we were at a lion's den, and I'll, I'll never forget. Um, she, you know, got up, and she was the only other female, one welder, and Mary Ward, who was the carpenter, she was the only other female. 
and they're both hard chargers. You know, I'd go out with them anywhere to do it, to do anything. And we start taking incoming one night and Mary Ward comes out and she's like in her, in her britches, like a brown t-shirt and her poly pro bottoms and her flip flops. And she's running out to her fighting position. I mean, and that, that was just what we did. And we'd keep bottles of water separated for us. They had the burn shitters and they had a piss tube. And I was like, Hey man, I can't, uh, I can't operate the piss tube. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry for you. The other danger to that was we were co-located with IA, with Iraqi army. And they were, they lived across the compound and they're, so they were just enamored with the fact that there were girls there. And I, being who I am, just was like, no, (laughs) no. But Mary was kind of, you know, they, co- they want to come up and hug and hold hands and do all the stuff that they do, and, you know, even with the males, that they're just very close people like that physically. I'm like, dude, don't let them do it. They're going to get that far, and then yeah, you're going to get pushing keep pushing it. And I, when I was there, I went out to my truck one morning to start prepping it, you know, getting make, checking all my oil levels and making sure it's loaded up for the convoy. And I look up in the corner guard tower, and there's an Iraqi dude like sitting up there squatting and fucking jerking off looking at me and i'm like right like looking up at him like right at that corner and he's just fucking staring dead at me and fucking jerking off and i come out every morning there'd be big piles of shit next to like the ladder to climb up on my truck and the water bottle sweet yeah it's a good time it's a good time that's awesome but the once the once the infantry guys got used to it you know it was fine but when i first got there and got out of the truck they was like what like the engineers get girls, what? Um, but that was where I love to be, much more so than being back next to the flagpole where you got to deal with the PT belt nonsense and all the other stuff that they were doing that didn't that didn't matter. Yeah. I felt like we were doing stuff that mattered. Yeah. Um, the f- only problem was we are fighting an enemy we can't see, mm-hmm. and it was getting smashed by cowards and not having anybody return fire on and that that constant feeling of fear and vulnerability as you're rolling down the road for hours and hours and convoy after convoy after convoy that feeling like in the pit of your gut like any second is going to be the next youtube video of you know me getting blown up you know Mm -hmm. with the music playing and the inshallah and all the all the stuff so i hated it I hated it. And I hated the fact that not only was I feeling that, I couldn't take that feeling away from my guys. Yeah. Like, I couldn't reassure them or make them feel safe. And as a NCO, as a leader, that's a horrible feeling. Mm-hmm. I can't keep my people safe. I can't. Um, so it was the impetus, really. I mean, besides not only do I want to fly helicopters, um, I want to. I want to kill dudes. Well, you want to be. I'm assuming at some point you're like, I want to be more proactive in doing something instead of feeling vulnerable. Yes. Like I, I used to feel bad. I mean, we would go out every night and target the bad guys that would blow you guys up every day. And I'm like, well, why don't we change tactics instead of having these guys drive around overtly yeah. and just waiting to get blown up instead of reinforcing our armor. So we could just suck it up more. Yeah. Why don't we change the tactics? We never did. It was just there's a conventional tactic, and at night there was an un- unconventional tactic. Yes. And it just it never made sense to me. And you're living in this vulnerability. One thing I want to talk about real quick is the fact that before 
the female integration became doctrinally a thing where we had to figure out how are we going to, at the government chief of staff level, integrate females into units, it's already being done. Like, it's just the problem with government. Like when you put government in charge of something and say, hey, let's create a doctrine, you're gonna create uh, bureaucracy, you're gonna create issues because it's super inefficient. When you just let the people do it at the unit level, what you guys were already doing, shit gets handled. Yes. Because I love combat in the sense that it's the equal opportunist. It doesn't give a shit who you are. You'll die just the same. You're a postal clerk guy, you're walking across a basketball court and you get smoked by a 107 more, yeah. like or a rocket. And then it's like, it, it doesn't matter and you start figuring out what's important mm -hmm. and the priorities of life really fucking fast. The, the other part of that, when you integrate, when you um, bring in the, the government intervention and the bureaucracy, not only do they start coming up with stuff that doesn't work after we've already figured out what does work, then you start punishing the people who are doing what always worked because they're not following doctrine. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't sleep in the same room as these males because you can't sleep in the same, you know? And so mm -hmm. that's the other problem of that. Like not only are they confusing things, but then you're starting to punish people who are just out trying to grind it out and get it done. And the ones who are actually the, you know, out there, out there doing it and I absolutely wanted to be I was sick of being a defender I wanted to be an assaulter I wanted to be an attacker I wanted to be the tip of the spear I wanted to impact the fight directly everyone impacts the fight the postal clerk impacts the fight mail is one of the four most important things to morale so everybody is important and has a part to play I just wanted to smoke dudes mm. I, I wanted that was I was done I was over it um, and I knew there was no other way for me to do that as a female at the time, except to be an Apache pilot, and I didn't necessarily want, think, or desire to put on a ruck and think that I had any business going and kicking in doors with dudes. I didn't, I mean, that was ludicrous to me, but I knew I could do something as an, you know, as an attack helicopter pilot. So how old are you at the time? And then you're a staff sergeant, obviously. Yes. And then how did that process work? I was a staff sergeant. And I had just turned 32, and that was the age cutoff at the time for for Apache or for flight um, packets. It's all waverable, but that was the cutoff at the time. I was 32 years old, and I was in Iraq, and you know we did have very limited internet at, at that time. There was internet cafes. It was not like the crap in your room, but you could have little MWR areas, and I was able to get on the HRC. Dot mil website, the uh, human resources um, website, and it had a link to download a packet to become a warrant officer. And I downloaded it and printed it. I had to go like go to the library, take a thumb drive, and then go to the library to get it printed. And we only get a half a day off a week. We had Sunday afternoons off, and this is when we were in for reset, so I wasn't always there. And so I worked. I worked on my packet. I flew up to I. I the funny, uh, the funny story is I couldn't get a flight um, physical there at, at Baghdad, but I could get it up at what was where was the green zone, where in the, oh, near the green zone they had a hospital with a surgeon, flight surgeon mm -hmm. who could do a flight physical. So when I got a Black Hawk ride, just a ring route Black Hawk ride to go up there and get my flight physical, is the first time I'd ever been on a helicopter, and I'm going to get my flight physical really? for my for my flight packet. That's awesome. And got got my flight physical while I was there. Got um, um, 
I didn't have a DA photo, but at the time they would allow you if you were, in, you know, if you were currently oh, downrange, yeah. you could get the just do a photo, you know, just do a waist up um, digital photo. And I didn't know any pilots. I didn't know how or where to get a letter of recommendation. But my last final step was I must have a letter of recommendation from a flight warrant. From a flight warrant officer. And I had never met a pilot. I didn't know. Had no aviation connections whatsoever. But at that time, First Cav was the um, was the headquarters, and I knew just from driving by it that there was the big First Cav symbol on a landing pad you know over where the helicopters came in and out of and there was a huge headquarters building that had all their bells and whistles on it you know we called it um fort hood east was what we we called camp liberty and i walked in and they've got you know a little reception counter where you can check your id to get in the building and there's a little e4 in there and she asked me what i'm looking for and um i was like well i need to talk to a pilot <laughs> and she said you know, she's just so she goes upstairs and asks for a pilot and the guy who pops his head around the corner of his cubicle is the G three air lieutenant colonel Lemke. Mm. And he's kind of laughs and comes downstairs and I'm like, Sir, I need a letter of recommendation. I'm trying to become you know, here's here's my folder, here's my packet, you know, all my stuff. Had a thumb drive with my letter of recommendation already typed up on it, like here's here's my stuff and he just laughed because now i now looking back i know that lieutenant colonels don't give letters or recommendations it's typically flight warrants or, yeah. or other people but the thing said cw3 or above or 03 or above so i was like okay surely in 06 will work and the but he told me he was like come back uh, with your platoon sergeant and I said, get on my calendar and come back with your platoon sergeant. And I came back with my platoon sergeant. He interviewed me, um, read through my packet, um, inter like was a thorough interview. I mean, now looking back, I know that because it's a it's a big deal to give somebody a letter of recommendation. That's super squared away. I'm just super impressed by that. It's awesome. Well, and he's like, you know, because you're vouching for someone. Yeah. So he told me my age and the fact that I have a GED were going to be my limb facts. Um, he said, you know, put it in, um, but, you know, just, just be aware that, you know, don't be disappointed if it, if it doesn't, if it doesn't happen. And so I submitted my packet, um, I, I submitted my packet and the first, like the next board, you know, it was three months away was the board. Uh, and by that time I was home, uh, we had, we had redeployed back to Fort Hood and I'm constantly hitting like the refresh button on the website when the board results come out and they took me. Um, now what was that feeling like? I mean, you, you see it, that's, I mean, it's gotta be a big deal for you. It was a big deal. I mean, I just, I could so clearly, you know, it's one of those mm -hmm. moments in your life where you like can see like the time on the clock and like this is frozen in time in your mind, sitting at my dining room table in my shitty little house in Colleen, Texas, and um, just, you know, just praying that, praying that this works out and that I, that I get it. And then I see my name and I can't believe it. You know, it's like wipe my eyes and like I see my name again. I call my platoon sergeant. He doesn't even believe me. He's like, send me the link. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. So I send him the link and the, yeah, man, I was just, it's a lifetime, you know, I'm in my thirties by then, you know, this isn't like, you've been you know, in the military over a decade. I, I had been, in, I had a break in service. Oh, I, did you? I, okay. I, did, I did have a break in service. 
but yeah, I, I had been doing this for a long time. And the, um, so the feeling was amazing. The feeling was amazing. And then it was like, oh shit, now, Time to go to work. now the hard work starts. Yeah. The, it, it was, but I'll, but I'll say now I have to acknowledge I have to acknowledge, if I want to be true and honest to myself, that clearly my gender had something to do with that. Mm. I mean, the, the person they're looking for is not the 32-year-old staff sergeant with a GED. Yeah. You know, I'm not the star packet. Clearly, I, I don't mean to undermine myself or my abilities or my resume was wonder, my, was rock solid. My NCOERs were rock solid. My GT score is, you know, great. My service history is impeccable. And... But I knew that part of the reason when they, and they say they don't, but part of the reason why you get in the door is that I'm a split tail. I have a vagina. However, I can acknowledge that. And then the rest of it is up to me. Like just because that got me in the door, I mean, what I do with that opportunity is completely up to me. Yeah, I can shake my ass and bat my eyelashes and hope I fucking get by by my looks or I can grind it out and, you know, and, and earn, you know, earn my place, um, yeah. earn my, earn my reputation. And I feel very, very fortunate that, um, that I, that I left, I left the aviation community with, with a good reputation. That means, that means more to me than any award or any plaque or anything, you know, anything I've ever done, frankly. So, you know, you get set up and then they tell you you're going to, to flight school. And then I, I know this from my experiences in the infantry and SF of guys and gals going, but you basically get a TDY date because you're going to training. And that starts with warrant officer training, correct? Correct. I was told, because I almost went became a special operations warrant, a special forces warrant, uh, which we call 180 alphas, which are basically the uh, intel warrants on the team. Um, it's a guaranteed way to get a whole bunch of team time. But even at the time, it doesn't. They don't do it now. At the time, they used to send our guys to the warrant officer's mm -hmm. schoolhouse, and it was known for being the shittiest school on the planet, like the the worst experiences. Because you're taking a senior guy, typically mm -hmm. senior NCOs. You were staff sergeant at the time, and they're treating them like privates all over again. Mm -hmm. How was that experience for you? That's so funny that you say that about walks because it is absolutely like that. It is a group of people, you know, we had E8s, I mean, who were transitioning and becoming walking warrants. You know, every, every branch, every, like you said, every warrant officer um, skill set goes to the same school. Whether you're going to be a pilot or a band leader or a logistician or, you know, special forces of 180, we all went to the same school. So you're combining all these people who are used to running their own shows. You know, you're used to doing their own thing. And then suddenly you have to brush your teeth and make your bed and be downstairs in seven minutes. And those, you know, roll your socks to, you know, six inches and they come in and measure your sheets. I mean, it's basic training all over again. You got to eat in 30 seconds. And, and a lot of these guys are bigger and not in shape. And so it was... Um, and you were, you're being treated by privates, by people that those of us that have been out and done enough know 
the instructors in those schoolhouses aren't the cream of the crop. Yeah. They're they're the fucking they're shit bags. They're shit bags. Yeah. They're the fucking B teams that take a billet to be a fucking TAC officer, the warrant officer corps. I don't care who's fucking listening to it. You're a fucking piece of shit. Yeah. Unless some disability is keeping you from being out in an yeah. operational unit. There are some unit. circumstances, but it's rare. Of, of course there are, but it's rare. And they get big dick syndrome because they're bossing E8s around and stuff and people and tempers flare. I mean, it is legitimately... And people quit. <laughs> I mean, there there is an attrition rate involved. Why, why is that? Do you think? I mean, do you think it's beneficial to the force to even do shit like that? It seems like, like this day and age that we're doing things like that to filter out senior NCOs to being in the war. Like an officer can go to OCS, breeze through OCS, get commissioned, and all of a sudden you're in charge of a company yes. of the troops, right? You're commissioned officer, and dudes are saluting you and everything. You go to OCS or uh, to to walk school. And it's like, dude, I'm trying to. I'm a senior NCO, uh, transitioning into a billet to be a technical expert in my field, yes. and you guys are treating me like shit. My own kind, yes. are treating me like shit. Was it beneficial at all? Absolutely not. Zero training value. Zero training value oh. to me. For us, for have six girls in a shower, all showering, like showering together in a tiny stall because we don't want to get the other two showers wet because we have to have the entire bathroom dry before That's we go so downstairs. Zero training effect, especially in the GWAT environment that we're operating in right now. We're taking these old hazing and bullshit tactics from when we're a garrison force. Mm -hmm. And, you know, well, back when I had to do it, we had to, you know. Yeah, well, that was September 10th, loser. <laughs> September 11th now. Ab absolutely. And it was, I, I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's a detraction. I, it's there's not only is there no training value, but you're wasting my time, mm -hmm. and you're wasting my time where I my unit that I just left is in Afghanistan again for the third fucking time. I need to return to the fight. Like, don't waste my time with this stupid shit. Like, I'm a 32 year old woman. Like, don't yeah. worry about how my panties are fucking folded and yeah. leave a note card with my de demerits for the day. And so weird. That's uh, so fucking weird. Oh, it was. But it, you know what? Every day my mantra was cooperate to graduate. Yeah. Cooperate to graduate. Yeah. There's cooperate. a bigger picture for you at that time. Yes. So you get through walk school, uh, obviously, and then you get assigned to go to basic flight. Incorrect. Mm. At this time, they had there was a complete shift in flight school order of operations. Mm. It formerly had been you went through all the way through flight school, you qualified in whatever aircraft you were assigned to, and then you went through Dunker and Sear. And they realized that the washout rate in Dunker and Sear was so uh, great, they were fucking up. Yeah, Dunker's They're, the tank where they flip you upside down in the water. Correct, yep. and then Sear's the survival school. So you had people that you had wasted millions of dollars on for two years to train them to be pilots and then find out they can't fucking swim. Yeah. So, I was right at the at the um, kind of the nexus of where they switched that around. So my very first thing that I had to go to was Dunker, which is a two-day course. You have one day of academics, and then the next day is out in the pool where they've got the apparatus, the helicopter. And first they do, you know, swim testing, and then we do like chair flipping, and we do some, you know, things in the water to figure out how to do it. And then you have to get in the apparatus. They strap you in. They lower you into the water. They, you have to wait for it to completely stop. It rotates, flips upside down, and they turn all the lights out so you're in the dark. You do a dark iteration and a day iteration, and then ex, um, egress the aircraft. 
and it's, you know, you have to get through it clearly and should need to get through it. And I grew up in and around lakes and streams and rivers and no pools. I mean, nobody had the money for pools so per se, but, um, so I grew up, you know, splashing around in rivers and lakes. You jump off the boat, you know, you get back in kind of thing. Um, didn't know I couldn't fucking swim. Oh, by the way, I can't fucking swim. So the first day we get in the water, I'm in all my kit. We're in full uniforms. We have our ALSI, our, our life support vests on, helmet, boots. And you get in the pool and there's like um, an initial deck, you know, where you're just standing and, you know, like waist high water. And then they blow the whistle and you're supposed to step off and swim to the other side. It's a huge, I mean, it's a deep pool. I have no idea how deep it is. But um, I stepped off that fucking ledge and sank like a goddamn rock. I mean, straight to the fucking bottom. I got out of the pool and was just sobbing like I failed flight school. I, I, all this. Day one. Day one. Step one. I have fucking failed flight school. And you want to talk about a soul-crushing moment. Soul-crushing moment. Well, what I didn't know is clearly I'm not the only one that that happens to. And the reason that they reordered things like that was to give people time you know, to retake that course. And the way that they do that, and it was Navy instructors. So, you know, it was the Navy instructors teaching it. And it was always so cute to me because they had, I'm sure Sean probably wore those little booty tan those shorts. Little UDT yeah. shorts. Those are cute. Um, they are super cute. Sean wears them around the house here. I know, I know weird. he does. It's, it makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so they did offer remedial swim, but it was on you. Like you had to return to, like we were doing academics in that time. You go take like um, airspace and weather and you know, classroom things we were doing at that time. And so before PT and in the afternoons after class, they offered remedial swim. It's on you. Show up, don't show up. And those guys were amazing. Greatest instructors, hands down, I've ever worked with in my life. That's awesome. They told me, show up in a one-piece swimsuit. Don't wear all your stuff. And I'm talking about remedial swim. It was hold your nose, you know, go down the ladder, hand over hand down the ladder, get at the bottom of the ladder so you can just sit there and get used to the pressure of the water on your ears and just sit down there in the deep end and then go back up. I mean, sitting, uh, literally laying on the side of the pool and practicing strokes, laying on my belly on the concrete. Mm -hmm. And, but I was, I was about it. You know, I went two times a day for three weeks and I got to the point where they felt reasonably confident that if I took the course again, that I could pass. And I was like, don't give me reasonably confident. Like, not only is this critical to me as a pilot to be a safe swimmer and be able to, you know, egress my aircraft in the event of a crash, but B, I don't, I don't like, um, you know, the, the halfway you know, yeah, don't, don't give me, like, if I kind of zero, don't send me over to the qual range. Like I want a zero and then I go to the qual range. I don't care if we're here till dark. (laughs) So that's what they did. They worked with me for a few more days and absolutely I've, when they finally put me in the apparatus and I felt comfortable um, and could comfortably swim, it was, uh, it was a big deal. Um, but I was, I was going to do it. You know, there was no way you were going, I wasn't, I wasn't tapping out. Yeah. You were going to have to fucking make me leave. Um, I so wasn't. it was not, it was night and day obviously, but did they give you, did they set a date for your retest or did they say that you could, uh, retest whenever you wanted to retest? 
Um, when you were ready. When you were ready. That's so awesome. Yeah. See, that's, you know, I, the, I have a problem with the Army in a lot of ways that it addresses training. Training is where you make mistakes. It's not the evaluation part of the process. You train up, you get trained, you cross your T, dot your I's, and then you get evaluated. And if you fail, you go back and you do remedial training. That's how it's supposed to work. Now you show up day one, you're fucked up, you go home. And we yeah. just wasted millions of dollars. The inefficiency is that it's just dumb. Yes. But you got trained up, you did remedial, and then you made it through that. Did you go to SEER school right after that? Immediately after that. Did you, you guys do SEER high risk C or is it the... Yes. Really? I didn't know that. Um, enhanced. Where's that at? Where's that at? It's at Rucker. At Rucker, okay. It, it is, and it's a. Uh, I mean, camp I ha- slappy and all that. Camp slapping, all of it. Awesome. Um, and I have no, I'm, you know, I have no idea, and I'm sure on no level does it compare with, you know, the Sears brag or wherever the, you know, the high speed guys go. But it was funny. Um, the, like, I guess the like support personnel for like the Green Beret units and stuff, they would get sent to us as well. Yeah. And so we would do a lot of the support personnel. But we did, yeah, the, the entire SEER um, process, uh, two weeks, you know, in small box, big box, peeing in the can, fucking shitting in the can. That's awesome. Camp slappy. How was that experience for you? I would have, after Dunker, I always joked. I was like, I would have gone through SEER every two weeks for the rest of my life before you get me back in the fucking, t- yeah. before you get me back in that course. SEER did two things for me. Firstly, it was my first real exposure to what we, you know, we've talked about just amongst ourselves as compartmentalization mm-hmm. and that we have got to be able to separate things out. When we did the initial section um, where they kind of do the practice roll up before we go back to the classroom and I remember, you know, getting getting rolled up at our, um, at our hide site and you know, getting thrown in the van and, you know, getting driven around. They fucking pull us out, put us on the rope. We're hooded up. Um, and I distinctly remember, like, sitting there on my knees. Um, I, I was, like, zip-tied behind my hands or whatever. And I couldn't stop thinking about, like, my parents and my daughter and what, what you know, if this was really me rolled up somewhere, like, what my family would be going through. And I'm glad that they do it that way, that you can – do like the two sections. Um, but I was like, fuck, I can't think like this. Like I'll never, I'll never get fucking through this. I'll never think like this. And I was like, and I hate, I mean, it was real training. It was valuable training, but I had to switch my mind off from, from that. And that was the first light switch moment for me where I have like, I've got to be able to separate my emotion, even in this, even in this, you know, out in the shit. It's, it's Fort Rucker in summer, man. It's lower Alabama, muggy, hot, spiders, bugs, it's just shitty, awful. Um, I was on a team with three other guys and one was an air force captain. He quit. I mean, he stood up and fucking got on the radio and was like flight surgeon. I'm, I'm done. I'm out. Um, so, but, but yeah, so, but it was, it was, it was a good experience. Um, and certainly for anyone who's does the things that we kind of do and are go, go the places that we go, I would have never known like some of the interrogation techniques and some of the, you know, the tools that they give you to, you know, to be able to survive those things and not, you know, be able to 
adhere to the code of conduct. I mean, yeah. th- I mean, I would have not known those things. And I certainly got myself in those situations when they do the interviews where I'm like, fuck, I'm the one that just fucking jumped up and down on my fucking uniform top. Or I held up the sign that said, I fucking hate my country. And I'm like, oh my God, how could I, how could I have done this? Like, yeah. You know, I've, I fucking like sold out my country to the enemy. And um, there, the one funny thing that I, that happened there has been my phrase ever since one of the um, one of the trainers that worked worked there at Sear, um, she was a small, very small little like Vietnamese lady, and she was tiny, and she hit harder than any of them. I was like that that I mean she had the she had the triangle she had the triangle down, and um, she pulls me out at the back of the van and goes, "Shut your cock holster!" And I was like, that was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I started laughing. I could not help it. I could not help it. I was laughing so hard. And then she fucking, you know, picks me up. Fucking wears your ass wears, out. Wears me out. Um, and the other funny thing was my buddy Tim Shaner, Blackhawk pilot, um, Colorado guard. They did one iteration where they got me in the room. They got me standing up and Chocolate Thunders, the dude that's, you know, tearing me up mm-hmm. and they bring Tim Tim in the room and they're like if you don't tell us XYZ she gets it so they were using the male female you know thing in yeah. in the seer course you know trying to um you know show that what we always taught that trope kind of like guys are always going to go in and rescue the female and it's going to detract from their mission Tim looked at me he was like sorry bitch <laughs> He's like, that's awesome <laughs> yeah so he was like you're getting it I'm like he's <laughs> like I'm not taking another one I'm not taking another round. So yeah, so Sear was Sear was the next part, and um, so you go from there from Sear school, you immediately go to is it her, her where, where's the training at? It's in uh, uh, Arizona. No, 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 it's Texas. Rucker. Rucker. Oh, at Rucker. Yes, yeah. And then this is basic flight school, like you're basic. flying bells. This is basic stuff. Basic, yeah. You know that experience for you, you did really well. I did. Yeah, how, on. The, I'm assuming after all your training, the established in OML, and we talked a little bit about it last night, but how do they determine who gets what helicopter and platform, and how, how does that whole process work? That process works by just exactly like you just described. You go through initial flight to make sure you can fly a helicopter, and that's when you fly um, instruments. You do BWS, which is our version of land nav, and you've got to be able to read a map and shoot, move, and communicate, mm-hmm. do the things that we do. You've never even been in a helicopter, really, No. prior to this. No, I had not. Is that is that a scary experience? I always think, I, I'm going to have to poop on this heli- in this helicopter, and I have nowhere to go, and I can't, and I would panic. Because, and that, I just, that's just my mentality. I'm like isolated in the cockpit and you got to fly this thing. Did you ever have any anxiety or any fear about that? None, not, not so much. I think at, at that point, the excitement was just so great. And you're being, it's an overwhelming assault on your senses. Not mm. all of the academics that you're still doing, they call it you know, death by fire hose, any of the, mm. you know, service schools and the stuff that we do. It's a ton of information, a short period of time. And uh, once I got up and flying and like found the hover button and could do it, I like, it, it was rad. It was You started rad. enjoying it. I really enjoying it. Well, yeah. you have this engineer, you know, engineer technical mind. And so you're able to apply, it's like driving a tractor, right? You're just yeah. able to apply and adapt to that. Um, so you didn't have problems in basic flight school. And in fact, you were at the top, I believe, of your uh, order oh, no. of merit list, right? I was. 
I, I was, I knew, once I, once I got to the hill, I, of course, coming not from an aviation background, you learn a lot about it on the fly as you get there and how things work and how it goes. And so the way it works is you get done with your basic flight portion. And at that point, they are rolling up everything you've done since you've been there, which is over a year at that point. Every PT test, every academic test, every um, flight t evaluation, everything into one order of merit list. And once you go to aircraft selection, the what they you know, they, they match up two things. They match up a class of an average of like 20 students and they match up the needs of the army today. So it could be as the recency on that could be like, you know, six dudes retired last month. You know, that's those slots come open. So, um, kinetically it's, it's just, there's no, there, you don't know. You, there's no rumors going around like, man, you hear how many, whatever changes daily. Yeah. Changes daily. And so your class reports to this big open classroom with the you know tables in it like a conference room and you walk in and there is a dry erase board standing at the end of the room and on it are the four helicopters in the army inventory at the time sorry kyle guys i always hate hate to say this um but apaches uh uh-60s blackhawks chinooks and oh-58s and there are literally just tick marks of the number of available slots next to every um, next to every aircraft type. And did you know and what you wanted prior to going into this meet that morning? I was determined to be an Apache pilot. Determined. I did not. I I love and respect. I'm not one of those aviators, and you'll meet them and talk to them. They're like, Ooh, "Fuck the Blackhawks," and you know they talk shit amongst each other. Every aircraft has a role. I, I have. Blackhawks are rad. They do rad things. Chinooks certainly do badass things. The Kiowas were doing badass things. I just wanted to shoot people in the face. Again, UH-60 might support the fight, but it's not necessarily directly. Infills and exfills, and they yeah. do crazy stuff, and they put themselves in dangerous situations. But I wanted to be that, um, the assault on the objective. I'm clearing the objective. You know, I'm the assault on the objective so that they can go into the objective. And that's what I wanted to do, to be that, to be that tip of the spear, to be that... Um, um, to be the attacker, the assaulter. And so I knew I wanted Apaches. And I walked into the room. We all walk in. You know, you're like crowding into the room like school kids, you know, like crowding into the room to see what's written on the whiteboard. And it says AH-64, and there's three tick marks, which meant there were three slots available for the, um, the Apache pipeline. And I'm assuming everybody wants to fly the Apaches. Shockingly, not not everybody. And honestly, I can I can see why, because a lot of the guys, especially the guys that had been crew chiefs out in the units, so they would have a preference because they want to, um, you know, go back to their units or, or whatever. And um, a lot of the Blackhawk guys and the, and the utility guys, they want that real world mission all the time. And again, the Apaches, it's cool when we're doing it, but it's boring as fuck when we're, when we're not doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and you're doing the, the garbage, the gunneries, and the shooting at the plywood targets, and not um, not doing the real stuff. Uh, so, but most people, most people wanted wanted the Apache. And how many is your in your class again? It was around twenty, I think sixteen, honestly. If, but I'm I'm it was a long time ago. Okay. And the uh, we walk in the classroom. There's a three tick marks. You don't people have a guess. I mean, certainly if you. 
if you don't know where you're at in the OML somewhat, then there's something wrong with you. You're not paying attention to how you're doing academically and how. So they I haven't knew, told you at this point told what us. your performance is academically or technically. We get our grade results, and you kind of talk on the bus as you're going out to the air, the little stage fields that they have, like who's doing what. But you don't know per se. Like don't they don't publish the OML list prior to you getting there. So we. I mean, they start it and they read my name first. And I was just like... You're the first person they mentioned. First person, first name they mentioned. And I was, the comparison of that feeling I had when I sank in the pool yeah. that day to that day wow. was like, I just... I, I was so excited. Wait, did they announce it? Did they say, because this is exciting me. Yeah. Did they say like... <laughs> Hey, we're going to announce the order of merit and start out with the number one stu uh, choice. No, or one no, everybody's it? just kind of you know people are like leaning on the window sills and sitting down. It's very yeah. it's very informal, uh -huh. and it's one of your instructors that you've been working with all this time, so you've got that relationship developed, you know. And he's and there it's it's Groundhog Day to them, mm -hmm. so they're completely apathetic. But about you knew it. when they called out your name first that you were the number oh, one. Oh yes, person. oh yes, and we knew how it worked going into it. And so they call my name, and then I legitimately like get to walk over the whiteboard and wipe that tick mark what? off the whiteboard. That's so it's exciting. Me, I have goosebumps. I do too. That's exciting, man. And then the real work starts. So you, when you're going to like wipe it, is everybody like, "What is she going to pick? What is she going to pick?" Well, what, this one guy, I, I won't, I won't, I won't call him out because he's that motherfucker he, out. No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not doing it. I'll do that. Um, just a douche. Uh, he was my stick buddy, Rich Barnett. You know who you are. Um, so. But he was one of that he was just, he didn't do well. He was always at the bottom of the OML. You know, it was always sick when it was test day. And, you know, yeah, one of those guys. Guy, that guy. Uh, the guy that was, like, wearing a bandana in the gym and, like, standing in front of the mirror and looking at his abs. Oh, he's just, what? Oh. Fucking douchebag. So anyway, so I, I, they call my name and he's like, like, bullshit. Because he knows, like, he's, you know, he's number 16. Like, and he, he wants me. He's one of those guys. I'll tell you who this guy is. He's one of those guys that has the uh, the Apache sticker on his back window already. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like the big vinyl. He went out to the vinyl He's shop. He's got the Airborne Wings tattooed on his lower back. Oh and yeah, he for, and his dog Airborne tags. School. And his oh yeah, and his He's dog got the tags on his rib dog tags. Yeah, on his rib cage. Yeah. Um. So <laughs> there's like five people who listen to this podcast. You're like, fuck, fuck man, them. I got that tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get it removed now. I have a fat girl on a cheeseburger tattoo. Nobody has any tattoos they need to worry about with me. Oh, um, man. I'm, so what did he get? Just by, just for... Shot. Funnily enough, uh, he got Blackhawks, and he went and bitched and moaned and fought it the whole time because we had to wait like six months, you know, when there was a bubble, you know, backlog to get up on the hill. And he fucking was in my class as an Apache pilot. You want to talk about demoralizing shit. What? Yes. Demoralizing. That's freaking crazy. Yeah. It, he um, went and complained all the way to the top, and they fucking just shut him up, gave him the cookie, and that was my first indication. I think I'm going to this elite, you know, not special forces, surely, yeah, but the yeah. most elite, you know, attack fighting machine, and it was my first indication that, oh... Like all that work, oh. I could have shaken my ass and fucking batted my eyelashes. And oh. were you um, the only female in your course? In your, in your no, team? I was not. I had uh, one female warrant officer who was a National Guard, South Carolina Guard. They mm -hmm. have Apaches, 
and there was one female a lieutenant and um one could one was good and one not so much. She did Kiowas, right? The other one did Kiowas? No, no, no. This was all in Apache class. Oh, this, uh, this is in your was, Apache Yeah, class. this okay. was in my Apache class. Yeah. So the, um, so yeah, so then, you know, then you wait your turn, you study, start studying um, your, um, studying your manuals and waiting for your time to get up on the hill. How long on the hill, how long is Apache training for, for uh, warrants and officers? The entire, I was at Fort Rucker for two years. So from walks to wings, I was um, two years. Explain to me the the feeling the first time you got into an Apache helicopter. My instructor pilot was old. You know, all the instructors up there typically are old Vietnam guys. And it was just the old old guys, old alpha model guys. And I had a Dave... Dave Jones, my instructor, crusty old man, grouchy, like, good morning. Or he's one, he's one of those like, what's so fucking good about it kind of guys, <laughs> you know? And so you never know where you stand with guys like that. And so he was my first instructor and we go out and do the initial flight. And he's on the controls, obviously. He's just demoing the aircraft. And I think really they're trying to make you sick, mm-hmm. you know, see if you can hang. And so they're yanking and banking and diving. And I start giggling. <laughs> And I just, just like this, like just the way I am now, I'm just giggling uncontrollably. Like we're in this dive, like doing like 2,000 foot per minute rate of descent, like heading wow. straight for the ground, going into NOE. And I'm giggling. He's like, there's no goddamn giggling in the Apache attack helicopter. And I was like, but it's awesome. That's so awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. Um, so... Yeah, it was, it was really, it was a, it was a rad feeling. Uh, and then I promptly like broke the door handle trying to get out, and he's like, "Oh!" <laughs> that was your first. Flight. My first fly, like fucking broke the door. He's like, "What?" I was like, "What knob do I grab?" He's like, "That fucking knob, like this knob." I'm like, "Oh shit!" Oh shit! That broke the door. How did you? How did you? How was the training um, with the gunnery and everything involved? Were you able to adapt to it well? Like, because I know, I know there's like a, like an engineering adaptation mm-hmm. that's required of you to problem solve potential mm-hmm. issues and remain very fluid in um, identifying tasks because you you have to stay multitasked yeah. um, while performing all your 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 jobs inside the uh, aircraft. I struggled most with with my emotions. Mm-hmm. Getting there were days that I didn't do so well, or we get into um, uh, like the you know the land nav, what we call the land nav BWS, um, basic warfighting skills, where you're NOE and you know looking for LZs and doing this stuff, and kind of just that self, like you know I could get you know an eighty on a test, but I, you know I I expect a hundred, and when you're tired and you're do, trying to do academics as well as flying, and you know they're long days. I mean, they're just long days. And I get to the point where I just like overwhelmed, kind of emotionally. And I did. I had one day where I started crying at the table in front of my instructor. And I was so, and then I'm pissed at myself because I'm crying. I'm not like weeping, but you know, tears are welling up. I'm getting that feeling like I need to get out of here. Um, and it got written up on my record. You know, like I had an emotional, essentially breakdown at the table um, after a poor flight where I wasn't on heading exactly the way I needed to be or whatever the issue was at the time. So I had to, um, 
I had, again, continuing with that compartmentalization and going deep, digging back to that well that had kind of been sprung, you know, in Iraq and those places, got to separate that out. And part of that, that I'm only learning now, frankly, is how to be kinder to myself and to, um, to I, I suffer you know, a lot from these inferiority complex, like I'm not good enough, I'm not as good, I've got to work harder, I've got to work harder, I've got to work harder than the next guy. Mm. And that that part was way more difficult for me because you're right, the rest of it came very easy to me. The systems of the aircraft, as in the, you know, hydraulics and electronics and all of that came very easily to me. The, you know, the tactics and all that stuff I was familiar with, a lot of the, um, a lot of these kids were straight to seat. They have to say that too. Some of these kid, people, that kids, these other people that were in the class with me were 21. They were direct wow. direct to walks, you know? I mean, street to seat means that you go into a recruiter's office, you say, I wanna be a warrant officer, and they do a warrant officer packet for you straight off the street, wow. and you go to flight school. So, you know, half of the class are, you know, GWAT vets and half of the class are just guys with a boner to go, you know, fly the Apache and they don't really have an understanding of the, what that means, mm-hmm. um, what the impact will be or what their job will be. And so, but that was also helpful because we could mentor those guys, right? We're going to bring each other up together. So let's have a study where we talk about these things and what, you know, what this stuff means and when we're doing gunnery and things like that and the impact and the importance. Um, it seems like a double-edged sword. I mean, being hard on yourself is what allows you to perform and be at your best because you hold yourself accountable. But also, obviously, on the other end of it, you're potentially beating yourself up. And then you're so hard on yourself, you don't know the limitations of that. And it can be devastating, obviously, in instances. Yes. Uh, moving forward into after you graduate uh, Apache Helicopters, you go to your unit and your assignment, but how does it feel after graduation where you're like, I'm a freaking Apache pilot. Like I'm qualified, you know. I craw- I've I've done everything necessary, yeah. and now I could put the sticker and the tattoo on. Funnily enough, I did immediately put the sticker. Not only did I get the sticker. Oh, I'm such a cheesy bitch. Got, I had a sticker. <laughs> it was an Apache cutout, and it said "Got Hellfire," like got milk. And uh, not only that, I got a custom license plate. You deserve it. What did it they say? Said, 64 girls, 64 GRL. Well, I get to the unit, they're like, look at this bitch, think oh. she's an Apache pilot. Like you haven't seen being an Apache are. pilot. You are, but you're just, just like you're a Green Beret when yeah. you graduate school. Yeah, I had the sticker, I had a, my DD-214 on the back of my my, my vehicle, the G-Watt ribbon all the way across. <laughs> I didn't have that. So moto, so moto. So you're you're rebranding yourself though. I mean, you've rebranded over a couple year period. You've taken something conceptually that you fantasized and dreamt about mm-hmm. as an objective, and you accomplished it. So you're rebranding not only your career field, but who you are as a person. Yes. How did that? I mean, how did that feel? Like, what is the? What's your personal life look like in this instance? The frustration with my personal life. I, I was married at the time, and um, my husband and I met and got married when I was um, an E4, about to make E5. And he was an engineer and an NCO, and he was just a hard charger. He was a heavy equipment operator, leader. Uh, he was just um, one of my mentors. He was my friend. And then it was this shift in our relationship where I'm not 
lower enlisted than him. I'm not a, a truck mechanic. I'm an Apache pilot. And it became this, and I didn't, I know it was difficult because I don't, I didn't know how to talk about it at the time, but he would make these comments like, well, I'm, I'm not an Apache pilot, so I don't know. Mm. And he got an email from an old friend of ours and he, when he made 87 and was like, congratulations, you finally outrank your wife. And he was like, actually, she's a warrant officer now. And, uh, you know, he, someone in my unit made it, he went to my first hail and farewell. And if you've been around any um, army aviation, you know that um, it's very loose the relationship between like enlisted and the officers, you know, it's first name basis on in most cases. And um, he went to my hail and farewell and he's this very rigid, you know, non-commissioned officer, you know, but, and he was livid. And he was also 11 years older than me that, that factored into it. But one of the, one of my lieutenants said to him, he's like, um, um, you got to salute your wife now, you know, some comment like that. And he very seriously said, she fucking knows who outranks who at home. And it deteriorated, deteriorated from there because I'm, I'm trying to focus on, A, now I'm trying to progress as a pilot in my unit, and I'm also worried about somehow emasculating my husband. And I'm, I want to be proud, and I want to come home and like rave about my day, but I can't to someone who's resentful now that I have made it or I'm doing something and I, I hated it because he had done, he deployed five times at that point. I mean, there's had, no need for him to be in. No, he was out there like in shitty situations, getting blown up and had been in terrible. Um, he wasn't hiding out of the schoolhouse. He refused billets at the schoolhouse to further his career numerous times because he wanted to remain a line, you know, a line company NCO mm -hmm. uh, or operations NCO. Um, so it was, that was broke my heart more than anything. Like you have no need, like I haven't done shit compared to you. Like, don't, don't do this. But um, I mean, it led to our, our marriage ending because I could not, I could not be in the helicopter after having had, you know, a night of arguing or whatever, go to work the next day and bring, bring my brain back into the cockpit. I call it the box office cause I'm a girl, I have a box. Um, but, uh, I don't get it. Just kidding. I <laughs> um, that's the sticker on my back, on the back of my truck. Um, so, I mean, that was a, a decision I had to make that I had to part ways with someone in my personal life. I was getting ready to go to Iraq for the first time, and I was like, I can't, I can't be trying to Skype you and fixing this problem. We all know how problems get fixed in relationships when we're downrange. They, they yeah. don't. Um, but it was, I mean, it was painful. I mean, he was my, he was my friend as well. Like I said, as well as my, as well as my husband. Um, but I had made it that far to do what I signed up to do. And I wasn't, I wasn't going to give that up for anyone. You, you go into combat and I want to get, I want to fast forward a little bit to the, mm -hmm. the instance in which, uh, you're killing your first bad guys. And you said, mm -hmm. you know, I know it's hard for a lot of civilians to understand this mantra that a lot of guys and gals have, which is, uh, I have an objective to shoot bad guys in the face. And you, sh you sh shouldn't take that on surface as, as literal. It, what it means is it's like, sometimes it is literal, but mm -hmm. it's like, I want to take the fight offensively to the enemy yes. and be involved where I have control uh, to conduct an off offensive operation instead of waiting mm -hmm. on the word or sitting in a vehicle, get, just waiting to get mm -hmm. blown the fuck up. 
and you, uh, in this instance, had this dream that might have just been a mantra or a saying mm. or a sentence, and now you're in the cockpit. Talk to us about the first time that you were in a, uh, a tactical engagement, engaging the enemy. Mm. Uh, walk us through that that story. The I'll say first that it goes along with, you know, like rape victims or victims of abuse. It's taking the control back. You know, after having been a victim and living in that fear, getting to take the control back and owning the control. And this was very, felt very similar to me compared to my ex other experiences with, with trauma in my life. And so to finally get out into the battlefield, and this particular engagement was um, a joint operation and we were working with the task force guys and um, working uh, with inserting a team on an objective. And so it was a very kinetic and busy battle space. Because you guys, Apaches, for people who don't know, escort the main infiltration, um, the main element that's going to infiltrate onto objectives. You guys escort provide support for those platforms because some of them don't have guns to protect themselves, right? Correct. They're troop transport carriers, essentially. Exactly. And the other thing that we are utilized for is because we also, you know, this isn't primary, but we also, you know, illuminate the objective, be it overtly or covertly, covertly, obviously, um, unless I shoot over on accident. Um, the uh, so. Very kinetic battle space. I'm in the front seat. The radios are blowing up. We have five radios. You know, we have um, CEPs in our ear, and the um, we're going around. And the little the little bird. Um, so the little birds are flying around. And the way we divide the battle space up is very. It's not very technical. You know, it's like, hey, you, you're going to remain east of. You know grid this will remain west we'll be at this altitude you know so we divide the battle space up into those just in sectors because i can't be looking for you all the time we, you know so little birds are flying around like mosquitoes we're flying around and um the the chinook is still inbound it's, they're just they're just landing so I'm, i can see out of the corner of my eye kind of the brown out cloud or, you know the chinook getting ready to land to unass these guys and just out of the corner of my eye I look down and see this line of five dudes, you know, clearly a line moving in a military manner, you know, toward the objective area. And I see one guy who's carrying something over his shoulder, clearly wrapped in some kind of rug or something. But I'm looking under FLIR, um, and a lot of people don't, who are, have more experience with night vision devices, like night vision goggles, don't, you know, FLIR is just heat. There's no, I can't break out anything but heat. And oftentimes it's very hard in the desert because everything is cold at night. Everything is the same fucking temperature at night. But I pick these guys up. They look suspicious, but you never know. You don't want to shoot the sheep herder, you know, any of those. But these guys are clearly not that. And at one point they stop, they all squat down, like they all take a knee in line. And at that point he's like, stands the this rug up and it is tall. This isn't an, you know, this isn't, you know, an AK. This is um, a weapon. And he lays the rug down and starts unrolling it. And they're like one wadi over from where, you know, where the exfil is, I mean, the infill is happening. And I call my wingman. I like talk him on the target. And I'm like, we, you know, have a discussion. Your wingman's the guy in the cockpit with you no, or another helicopter? other helicopter. Okay. And so gun one and gun two. And I'm gun one in this instance. So I'm lead 
um, the lead aircraft, I mean the front seat of the lead aircraft. And Real quick, the front seater is the guy or gal who pulls the trigger. The back seater in the bird is the guy or gal who flies. Primarily. Right? Primarily. Okay. Primarily. But we do have the capability to shoot from both crew stations. The only weapon system that you cannot operate from the back seat is the Hellfire because we don't have a laser. The laser, the LRFD and the laser is in the front seat. So we have the discussion. We all we agree these are bad guys, and the 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 benefit of the briefings and the stuff that we do. I'm only talking to my wingman about this engagement. Like I'm not going to bother the task force guys who are over doing their thing, you know. So this is not autonomous on us. This isn't like the whole world's going to have a discussion about this. I'm going to let them know so when they see me shooting shit. And my first <laughs> my first engagement just happens to be. Um, so I pick the guy up, they see us or hear us, and they start they will start to run down in this wadi and start splitting up. So I've split up the group with my wing with gun two. So he's keeping eyes on these guys as they split up. I'll keep eyes on these guys. And it was just two dudes who ran off separately, still running toward the objective. And I um, get on the first one. Talk, you know, talk with my backseater. We set up the, um, you know, we're going to do a racetrack pattern. Here's our heading inbound. You know, I'm going to shoot 10 rounds of 30 millimeter. We do a brief between ourselves and he clears all, checks all my settings. He's like, Roger that you're clear to, you know, clear to fire. The only thing I didn't do is we only carry, people are sometimes surprised to hear that we only carry 300 rounds of 30 millimeter on, on the aircraft. Typically we have the capability to carry way more than that. Um, so we've got to be kind of, we got to be careful. You, you can't just launch all 300 at, at, at a ghost, you know, you have got to, um, kind of conserve your ammunition. And so you have weapon settings in the Apache where I can choose, I can select, I'm going to shoot 10 rounds. Every trigger pull is going to be 10 rounds. Every trigger pull is going to be 20, 30, 40, 50, all. And all's a good time. That's a good button. It's fun sometimes. There's an all button? There's an all button. You just dump everything in with one button? One squeeze. Man. I want an all button. It's better than sitting on a washing machine. I'm telling you. Because <laughs> the gun's right underneath your seat, right? It's like... Do, 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 Wait, do, I don't do. understand the washing machine thing. We'll get to that Never later. mind. Back You'll, to the... You never there's will. There's an all button? Yes. So you hit an all button and you basically send every munition for that particular every weapon. Every round. Yeah, for that, or every, for that weapon system. And there's no take backs. Once you hit all, oh, it's gone. Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. I want a semi, I want like a safe and then an all button on my carbine. That's, a, <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we, so it's a TTP, but it is a TTP that we discuss and train on. It's not something you're just like, oh, what fucking button am I hitting today? Based on the mission, how long I need to be out there, what the threat level is, all of those things are, we set that up. But typically we shoot 20 because the, the 30 millimeter, as sexy as it is, is an area weapon system for a reason. Mm. It's an area. It does not, all those rounds do not go to the same place. And, and the kill radius of an individual 30 mic mic is five-ish? Five-ish. However, they're designed to detonate when they hit metal. They're designed to detonate when they hit tanks. So when you see all those videos on YouTube of guys that you see the dust cloud and they get up and run away, oh. it's because the round doesn't detonate in the sand. It doesn't wow. detonate when it hits a human. And so I don't know how in 20 years we haven't fixed, designed a better round that operate for the area that we're operating in primarily. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so you gotta pick enough, but not too many, yeah. if, you under, if that makes sense. So we typically pick 20 in the hopes that one of those 20 will hit the dude because it literally, unless it 
hits something hard enough to detonate, it won't kill them unless it hits them. Mm. And the um, and so I had it set on ten inadvertently, and um, and so we're coming in, and my backseater's a little kind of cowboyish, and we're coming down this wadi. Um, you know, just right over the top of the wadi, and he's close. I mean, we're we're very close. I mean, he's like, you know, he's this big in in, in my screen, and um, pulled the trigger and got him. I was like, oh shit, it was only. It was, I'm like, oh fuck, I only hit ten rounds, and fucking one of them hit the dome, and um, and I was like, and not not so. Not only is it, um, I'm gonna get emotional. So. Well, there's no lull in the act of doing an engagement, right? You hit the, the engage button, you hit the bad guys, but you're in a technical space mindset-wise. Mm -hmm. So you're just like, all right, what's the next, next. thing? Yeah. Right? Is there a disassociation between, you know, you always hear about this, right? Which is, as a sniper, sitting behind a long gun, observing somebody, mm -hmm. the, the longer you observe the person, the more you become emotionally... It's not an attachment, mm -hmm. but it's just a placement where you start to read behavior and then you start to humanize what you would really see as a technical robot, mm -hmm. an avatar mm -hmm. on a battlefield. But now it's a real person. Is there a disassociation with that in that screen? No. I, well, I absolutely saw them. Um, it, it was never like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not not really doing this or that yeah. person not really there is just an enemy combatant. Like I can, cause I can look, I mean, we have very good, um, uh, sensor systems. I mean, we have very good sensor systems and I can see facial expressions and wow. see their sandals yeah. and what they're wearing. And if you ever seen like faces under Fleer, you know, you can see them talking to each other and motioning to each other. So this is very different. Cause I'm, I'm maybe this comes from the, the gunship world, right, mm -hmm. where it's completely different. Their flare pod is from 10,000 feet and above, yes. and you guys are up close and personal with these Yeah, you know, 500,000 meters sometimes when you get in close and tight, and the, you know, we, our sensor systems have the c capability to shoot out to 8K, so you can imagine what they look like at, at 500 meters, you yeah. know, when it were, we can shoot stuff out that far. And in this particular instance, when I go move to guide number two, Right, because like I got one, all right, one guy down. He was the one that had the rug, and I couldn't find him again. We're flying up and down this wadi, and I can't find him again. Can't see him. Can't see him. I'm getting getting frustrated, and all of a sudden I see him clearly in my FLIR shift his rug over his head, like he's pressed himself up into the side of that wadi and has been using that rug to hide himself. And he just like pulls it back over and up and over his head again. And it was enough for me identify to identify movement. And I know it's, I have the PID and they're, you know, they're the same guys. And we just, we, but we had to reset our kind of our angle into attack to get into the side of the wadi rather than do an offset engagement. Um, and fix my, fix my round setting and shot 20 rounds at that guy and got him. And not only did it, not only did it feel, and again, it's, it's very hard to explain this stuff in terms that doesn't, doesn't sound monstrous to people. You know, I, my, my, I wanted to go out and engage the enemy and actively, you know, participate in combat. And I wanted to kill bad guys. And I had done that. Not only had I done that, but the fact that I had done that meant that 
there was Americans on the ground as I'm doing that who are kicking in doors and, and you know escorting Iraqi hurting Iraqis through through the objective who were going to fucking go home that night because I had done that. Wow. And that was what I wanted to do. Wow. That was what I wanted to do. I get chills just thinking about it. I, I I have been on instances in Iraq and Afghanistan where Apaches have saved us. I had an Apache in Afghanistan in 05 escort me all mooched up like mm. an Afghan driving a Camry uh, through the Hindu Kush uh, by myself about a mile behind our convoy because they left me because um, I couldn't keep up in the Camry yeah. and literally fly next to me the entire time. Yeah. Originally they saw me and they called me and I heard it on the radio because I had an RTO with me and they were like, Who's this guy coming up? We see a yeah. dude rolling up in the, and it's like, that's one of our guys. Can you yeah. provide support for him? And the Apache flew with me and escorted the Camry the entire, it's so odd to look over and see an Apache flying and him like giving me thumbs yeah. up as he's escorting the convoy, but he's really escorting yeah. me down the Hindo Kush, the Konar River. Yeah. And those, you guys have saved our asses so many times. And I have to imagine that one of the best feelings that you've ever had is the sense of accomplishing that objective and understanding that your purpose is so solidified in what you do mm -hmm. for a living. Um, when you get back, what's the, what's the feeling? When I got back, the feeling was, Well, it's it, then it goes then it goes into all right. We gotta we gotta go see legal right every time you have an engagement. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. You gotta go. Okay. And it's different when we're doing the DSRW stuff because it's not public. You know, it doesn't go up the same pipeline. DSRW. What's that? A uh, direct support rotary wing, and that's when a uh, like conventional unit like we do with the Apaches is directly supporting, like directly tasked to the one sixtieth or whatever teams are there. It's being broken off from the unit, and you're going out to directly support. So you show up to work every day with those guys essentially yeah. and there's no that none of that legal process yes, because yes. it's already figured out yes exactly at the task force level. exactly okay. um so we have to review the tape and you sit there and at that point it's like oh man i hope those guys were really bad guys and it's, so that's that was that's when like the second guessing and the questioning and because unfortunately what happens if you inadvertently do something like that, I mean, you're going to jail now. You know, by that time it had gotten into that environment where guys were getting rolled up if they weren't, um, if they weren't um, doing the right thing. So, um, so anyways, so yeah, so you start worrying about it and worrying about it. And as we're flying back in, I'm starting to worry about it rather. Thankful, thankfully, I hear the call on the radio from the ground dudes that they were able to go. We pass, had passed that grid, obviously, to the, to the team that was on the ground. And they had gone over and identified the weapon and identified, you know, all the stuff that they have on them and started to collect their biometrics and stuff. And that was like the feeling of relief washing over me hearing that radio call. They weren't like calling me directly, but I hear the call like, yeah. yes, we've identified this many dudes and they were having the, you know, doing their BD, doing the BDA report, battle damage assessment report. So that was like, that was when finally I, I could relax a little bit. Like it was a good, you know, it was a good engagement and you go back and talk to legal about it. Now, when I had to go back and review it with legal, they have our, what we call our standardization pilot, like the guy who's the pilot of all pilots. Like he's the one that does your evaluations and does everything. And on my tape, as we're kind of trying to um, 
trying to unfuck the battle space when we first get there and stuff. The radios are going crazy. And I say on my gun tape, I was like, these fucking radios make me want to punch babies in the face, man. I'm talking to my backseater just internally. You know, I'm yeah, not pushing yeah. that out. And right after that, we see those dudes and roll into the engagement. So that clip of me saying that is like rolled up <laughs> into wow. my tape. And Rob looks at me and he's like, Emily, I love you. <laughs> but you can't fucking say it. You want to punch babies in the face on your gun tape. He's like, yeah. that's the kind of shit. Because they teach us, you got to be professional and not swear. Yeah, you yeah. have to professionally and kindly kill people and to protect us. I know it's protect us. I get pissed off at the politics of it, but I know it's, yeah. it's a CYA, cover your ass thing. Um, so that was the only negative from from the engagement. Did the other guys get the, did your other women get the other guys? No. The other two, Steve Scott, still so pissed at me about the, to this day. Steve Scott was a front seater in, in Gun Two, and his dudes immediately like jumped over a wall into a courtyard, and then it's and then it's hands off. We can't shoot structures. Yeah, I mean if collateral a, damage. Yeah, collateral damage. If a stray round hits somebody's sheep or their compound or whatever, at that time the ROE at that time was such, and so in. So I got lucky. <laughs> so I yeah. you know, got the engagement that night. And that was one of those nights where it was very few people um, out. And But typically, it wasn't these hordes, uh, you know, approaching these... Um, you know, approaching these objectives, it was these, you know, onesie, twosie, threesies, unless you would get into some of the down south, farther along the Red Desert, and you get some of this, like, weird... Chechens and like crazy foreign fighters. foreign fighters where you see you're used to seeing dudes in robes who are just running around then all of a sudden you look down and you're looking at dudes and you're like and so then we start getting the s2 briefs and everything about chechens and foreign fighters and whatever um then it's a different then it's a different ball game but this is your uh you're you're in combat and you're doing sustained combat operations and the frequency of flying. What's what's the average? If you could talk about it, what's the average rotation for an Apache pilot? The, the length of months. The length of months of combat. We, we do just it was straight along line with the conventional forces. When it was fifteen month rotations, it was fifteen month rotations. Wow. When it was twelve months, my my two as an Apache pilot were nine ten month rotations, mm -hmm. no mid tour, um, but those were we fell straight in line with. With the conventional guys on that. Did you start okay as you're you know you're transitioning to the latter part of your career and you're leading up to retirement, right? And that's a twenty year retirement retirement I'm suing. I I actually um, separated at seventeen active mm -hmm. because of my break in service. Yeah. Um, so I did twenty two total with my IRR time and I had some guard time in the mm -hmm. middle of that break that I was in the Oregon National Guard. So, but but it, yeah, leaving at twenty twenty years since I twenty two years since I joined. Yes. So. I don't know this, but it just seems to me, because I've seen you guys as op tempo, that you're going to accumulate a, a significant amount of combat stressors. I mean, I know regular Army guys, and look, there's for me, I don't like have the, the typical symptoms of post-traumatic stress because I had a lot of decompression time. Mm -hmm. I wasn't exposed in vehicles just randomly driving down the road. Our actions were very deliberate and mm -hmm. offensive. Um, you went from a staff sergeant being exposed to combat in several theaters and then go to be an Apache pilot and then you're exposed to combat um, and, and continuous combat for periods of time. Did that have an effect on you at all? 
it had an effect on me and I, the other part that is that people don't understand, especially about aviators, or just not don't understand, just don't know, aren't aware of, is that it's just as stressful every day in fucking garrison, man. It's just as stressful without the reward because every day, most days, I'm climbing in a fucking helicopter that could kill me every fucking day. And I'm doing it. We pull the aircraft off the boat or off the C-17s and we're getting right back in those, we're putting them together and fucking flying that day because we have gunnery in two weeks or we got a training event, we got NTC. So there is never, there is never an off. Like there's never an off day where you're not like shaking in your boots. Like is today the day that, you know, I shit an engine and burn it into the training area at Fort Hood, you know, and it happens all the time. <laughs> Anyone who watches the news knows it happens with frequency. So the stressors ab- absolutely built, and it was I was it was not unique to me. I mean, I talked to my brothers, and you'll hear it over and over again in the aviation community, especially at that we start to get around that 17, 18, 20 year mark where people are just holding on, like doing the, I just gotta yeah. do it for two more years. I've heard I just that, gotta yeah. do it for two more years. I, you know, gotta get my retirement. And how, I mean, how fucking terrifying is that? And awful that yeah. we're not, we don't love what we do anymore. We don't fucking care about it. Like we feel, the days. we feel, we feel fucking used and like washed and fucking put up and, and <laughs> just counting, just counting the days. You're like surviving. You're, you're just trying to yes. get through. A career fields. It happens in special operation, special operations frequently as well, where you know guys are are getting to the tail end of their careers. They've done a significant amount of combat, and then they're coming home. But every single trip they go out, they're starting to, you know, they're starting to not look forward to it anymore. Mm. It's not fun anymore yes. because now it's like, can I get back and make it out alive? Yes. Because we all hear the stories of guys that their last up, their last year their last few missions and they wind up getting killed in combat. Um, and part of it psychologically in survival mm. that I've studied is uh, there are some components of mistakes made mm. because of that mindset that you create where you're less willing to to make to take risk potentially or to do things or you're hesitant to do things and you wind up paying for that mistake. Um, when you got to the tail end of your career and decided to separate, why did you decide to get out? What was what made you decide to get out? I decided to get out for exactly that reason. And I had, I mean, I articulated that to the flight shrink, to the flight surgeon. My, I, I, so my back was injured. I was I was having back problems. I was um, grounded for that. Every every aviator has back problems. It's just the nature of what we do. But I my head wasn't in it anymore. I didn't love it. I dreaded it. I felt exactly like that. I was like, I have a number of straws and a handful of straws when I first started, and I'm, you know, I'm getting to the last straw. Was it fear of impending doom? Was that part yes? Of it? Yeah. Oh, dread. dread. I mean, I was. I mean, my my. I would be nauseous push, pushing power levers to fly. I'd be nauseous, and I told my buddy James, my my best friend. I told him one day, I was like, you know what, man? If like even ten percent of me. Even on training flight, routine training flight, you know, getting up and doing traffic pattern. If my, if I, 10% of me is not present, like not mentally present in this fucking helicopter, not only am I putting my life at risk, I'm putting people I love, you know, my buddy, the guy in the back seat, I can, he could be a dick. I fucking hate him. I'm still putting his life at risk as well. And I, I was in the position, unlike a lot of my friends, where I'm single, I don't have small children, I, don't have bills. I can afford 
to walk away. And unfortunately, so many of my, you know, have stay at home wives who've been grinding it out, you know, <laughs> at home by themselves and small children and, and they can't, they can't afford to just walk away and, you know, they can't afford to walk away. And I was like, I can, and I'm, I'm going to, and I'll tell you what, um, Was there a sense of relief in that moment? There was relief and just sadness. Because you have to like, it's like being a cop, you know, you turn in your gun and your badge. And uh, I turned in my helmet and my vest. And... But the other part of that, there was relief in that. And then the other part of that was the fact that um, I saw that I was just a cog in the wheel. You know, I, you get, I'm like, oh, I'm so, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so important. They'll be, or, you know, useful, I guess, of use or, um, that if I quit and leave that, um, you know, I, I'm just putting more work on my friends. That, that was my mentality. Like if I cut out, right. Am I just like shifting the, you Burning. know, my burden on, yeah. on, onto, onto my brothers and which was awful. But then what I saw was I did that. And it was like, I went to see the brigade commander and told him what my decision was, that I was going to go ahead and, and be done. And he was like, you know, Emily, thank you um, for your service and how much you contributed to the mission. I'm in Germany at this point on a UCOM rotation. And he's like, and I, you know, I'm on his calendar to go see him and I report to him and do all this. And he sees me for 15 minutes and I see like the very canned kind of, you know, thank you for your service. And then he's like, all right, my next appointment's in five, you know, he's, then he's right back to, right back to business. And I was like, holy shit, the machine just fucking steamrolled right the fuck past me five seconds Spit after I turned, yeah, after I turned my helmet in. But I needed that. I, like I needed that to yeah. free myself of that of that fear or that additional guilt yeah. um, that I was that I was giving up on my brothers. Well, it takes a lot of personal. I mean, it, it takes a lot of personal courage to make a decision like that, where you selflessly uh, uh, you start observing yourself and your liability, and when you feel like you're not becoming an asset, mm. uh, we handle things differently. Some people look at themselves as a liability and they kill themselves because they feel like they're mm. they're worthless. But when you, when you actually have the personal courage to come forward and say, hey, listen, I potentially might be a liability, and you figure it out with friends, with peers, mm -hmm. with uh, supervisors, mm -hmm. and then you come to the determination that it's time to step away, that's control. That's taking a deliberate step forward in the right direction. And, and that takes a lot of personal courage, and that's not a, a cowardice move. I, I think, in fact, that's a, a very bold and, and uh, strong move, and I, and I wish more people would do that because... We're so scared to step out of that position for the, so many other reasons. And I mean, it's the special operations community. And I've seen so many guys at the tail end of their career not have the personal courage to come forward to say something like mm -hmm. that and instead destroy their family lives, destroy mm -hmm. their personal uh, relationships in the military, destroy their military careers, get drunk, get a DUI, get put in prison, do dumb shit when they had the opportunity to deliberately make a conscious decision. And you did that. I mean, kudos to you for for doing that. You transition and you're going from being an Apache pilot on active duty as a CW3, a Chief Warrant Officer 3, and you're going to be just Emily. What does that look like and how <laughs> have you handled that process? That <laughs> My flight surgeon, before my flight shrank actually before I left Germany, it was one of the questions that 
he asked me when we were talking about the decision. And he leaned over and looked at me, just like you asked me right now. He's like, who is Emily if she's not in the uniform? Who is Emily if she's not an Apache pilot? And it was awful. I was like, I don't know who the fuck Emily is. I have, Emily is, when, you, I, when I take that, you know, thank me for my service shit out of it, I'm like, oh fuck, I'm a failed wife three fucking times. I'm estranged from my fucking adult daughter. I've just demolished, you know, familiar relationships. I'm a fucking lonely old lady in an apartment by my fucking self and gun bunny actual. <laughs> like what? Like what? Um, and it has been, I, I'm a year out now from, from when I was done, uh, it was last November, uh, November 28th, 2018. And it has been, it has been a struggle. It has been a struggle. I had had a period of sobriety um, before when I was at, at the tail end of my career and I relapsed and fell down back into the hole of the bottle. I ended up in a fucking mental institution for, 17 days like trying to get my head right and trying to sober up again and another one of those conscious decisions where I was like I've got to seek help like something is wrong in my head and I was chased by nightmares and demons and I was having the worst nightmares I've ever experienced and I was starting to see those fucking fleer faces in my sleep of the dudes that I had fucking smoked and it was you know drinking to shut those up, which helps nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, um, so I was I've, I've floundered. I have I have floundered, and I know that a lot of people and a lot of the people that will be listening to this or watching this um, have followed my journey as Gun Bunny Actual, and I've been very vocal and I've tried to be very transparent about my struggles um, as I've tr- I've worked through this transition and. Now, finally, I had, I had to realize that I was, and I know we have, we talk about the tribe and circle small and all of those things, but I, not only did I get out of the military, I geographically removed myself from my friends and my military friends and family, my safety net, and back to Oregon where I no longer knew anyone or, you know, people had changed and not, were not around. And I had my a bunch of retired Apache pilots who work in Huntsville, Alabama at the Redstone Arsenal. Um, my mentor reached out to me and was like, he literally, the first thing he said to me when he picked up the phone, now I'm not on Facebook, he doesn't know I'm struggling. I'm just sitting on my couch, drunk at nine o'clock in the morning on a fucking Tuesday and feeling sorry for myself. And he calls me and he's like, bitch, what are you doing with your life? And um, send me your resume. And um, I... My dream was to retire to Oregon, and I had to deliberately shift fire. <laughs> deliberately shift fire. Like this was the plan. It is not working. This is. I don't have a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I'm floundering to find a purpose, and one is not just going to fucking magically appear before me. I've got to go find it. And coming back to Huntsville, I've only I've been here since August. Been in Huntsville since August, working back in the Apache program, working around retired Apache pilots and Apache maintainers, um, has been. I had to get back. I had to get back to the nest um, of people who could call me, you know, and be here. I'm, I'm near, 
I'm close to, to Sean and Katie and knowing that I have people who I can pick up the fucking phone at 10 o'clock at night and be like, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm suffering. People know that very, my, after I um, came back from Germany, my best friend died in the crash at Fort Campbell last year. We just recently had another incident with an Apache crash um, overseas. And um, so those are things that dump on, you know, if I let myself get buried by the guilt and the shame and the remorse, those things happen and I'm like, you know, it should have been me, you know, uh, you know, these kids have fucking wives and kids and I'm just a grouchy old lady, you know, nobody'd miss me. I mean, those kind of bullshit head games. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really honestly at the like step, the first step of getting out of this kind of hole that I had allowed myself to get into, to reestablishing my purpose, to getting back into running, to get taking snowboard lessons again this, you know, this winter, um, to getting around, to getting out of my fucking apartment, frankly, and coming to see people that, you know, I've, um, getting out of my fucking apartment, <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, getting out of myself and, um, getting right sized to the universe. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's a struggle. And I know I certainly know, and I'll, I'll, I'll just be honest, you know, I'm, and I, I called Sean the other night or Sean called me rather. And I was very upset over the loss of my friend. And, um, I only, I only, people know I'm not a, like a big, big gun chick in spite of, in spite of my big gun that I flew. Um, but you know, I have a personal protection weapon and I was drunk and I was upset and, um, but I at least had the, I, but I called a buddy and asked him, just come over and hold my Walter for a week. You know, I was like, man, could you just hold my Walter? And like, it didn't have to say anything else, but I'm close enough to people that I know and love who'd be like, you know, I don't want to wake up in a blackout and fucking eat a gun when I don't like mean to, and I'm in this black pit. And, um, and then the next thing he says to me the next day is like, oh, by the way, I pawned your fucking Walter for a black dildo, bitch. You know, I mean, but I can't have that elsewhere in the civilian community. Like, I, like that interaction like this. Hey, man, I don't want to kill myself. Could you hold my fucking gun? Yeah, sure, bitch. You want a dildo? I mean, it's that, again, that compartmentalization where it's a very serious subject, but we can fuck with each other about it. But I can... It, do that. You know, I can go, this isn't, I don't, I don't need this on my bedstand right now. Well, I'm we talking about the dildo still. Or you... Yes. Well, I kept the dildo. He kept the gun. It was an even trade as far as I'm concerned. Why's it gotta be black. That's weird. Well, one, I mean, each one goes in a separate hole. I don't know how it works. You know, I think it's interesting is the realness in the conversation is, is people are afflicted and affected by what you're saying, but they don't say it. Right? The, the world, everybody in the United States who wants to pretend like this type of thing doesn't happen um, has unrealistic expectations about the world because it happens to everybody. And, and what I've started recognizing and advocating for veterans and mentoring kids and doing all this stuff that we're doing is it's a part of the process. Right? You, you're literally coping with losing something in your life. It's the same exact resiliency. It's the same exact mindset. It's the same exact components of losing a level. You're going through trauma all over again to rebuild yourself because you've lost something significant, which is your identity for the last 20 years. And so that process is a natural process. You can't 
you can't gain something so astounding without losing something. And so when you transition into this phase, you have to rebuild yourself. And you're taking all the necessary steps, which is important. It's critical. One of the big, biggest steps that I've identified is sitting here doing this. Yes. It's talking about your story so other people could hear it. So they're not afraid to pick up the phone and ask for help. They're not afraid to realize that if Sergeant Major Glover and you know M the Apache pilot can, can come in here and talk about realness and how their lives were affected by trauma, which how you define trauma is up to you, but trauma is trauma. And then turn your life around and re-identify who you are as a human being to assimilate in society. Um, that's what's real. And you know that, that story is a lot of people's story. And one, one I wanna say I'm, I'm proud of you for doing uh, this podcast because it takes a lot of courage to do this, to talk and be open and real. And that's what I always liked about your Gun Bunny actual account, right? Your Instagram account, which is the, the fact that as a woman, you didn't have to show your ass like my ex-girlfriends. Um, you didn't have to pretend like you were something that you weren't because you were something real. You were in that cockpit. You were, were confronted by enemy personnel and putting your life at risk uh, with your peers. And that's as real as you can get. And so I think without maybe knowing it completely, you've made uh, an astounding effect on people who want to get that kind of messaging in themselves. Where they wake up and they don't have a fucking dad to tell them they're fucking doing awesome. Yeah. Um, where they want to be you, uh, whether male or female, and you're guiding them in the right direction. You're that fucking light. I hope that you bring back some kind of account and, and influence when you feel like the timing is right. Because I, it, it, it has helped me over the last four years in my transition. Uh, it has, uh, had, had, has had a positive impact because I've articulated it the right mm -hmm. way. And moving forward, you got that fucking job um, that contracting job was just fucking amazing. Um, and now you're moving forward in your life. What's the next couple steps for you in taking us another step forward? The, I want to talk specifically a little bit about the Gun Bunny Actual part of it. Um, Gun Bunny Actual, the Instagram account, will not come back. But however, I am back up on Instagram for people who are not aware on the account is um, mjoy.hills, I mean mjoyhills, E-M-J-O-Y-H-I-L-L-S. E -E yep. e but I'm back on as Emily. Mm, and like the, um, I do feel strongly, uh, I, I, want, I really wanna put my story in paper uh, and write a book. I, I've, I know I've talked about it, my followers, uh, my nuggets know that I've, t I've talked about it and I'm, I'm gonna continue and, um, work and try and get and get that done but the I think at least for the time being my presence will be on my website gunbunnyactual.com so I won't lose the brand necessarily gunbunnyactual but I can kind of without getting stressed out necessarily emotionally by the kind of interactions and the stuff going on with Instagram censoring and their algorithms and all the stuff um, po just post you know the pictures and my stories and the things that I think like you say, people really followed me for, you know, my, my experience, strength and hope. And, um, and I know, you know, my honesty and brutally, <laughs> uh, whether, whether I should or not. And, um, and continuing to make 
evaluate the plan just just like we do tactically, you know, you know, establish COAs and, you know, pick a COA. It's not working out. I'm going to pick the next COA and um, just trying. And that's why I follow you, frankly. I mean, it's just that always that it's not just a positive bullshit message like have a good day. It's like, no, here's fucking tools that work for me. Here's what I'm trying next. And it's a roadmap to 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 attempt. It's a COA, you know, to attempt. And that, um, that speaks volumes. And I, I appreciate that from you. And I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. Um, but I'm just going to keep getting up every fucking day and trying to do the next right thing, man. Like one day at a time, one day at a time, each day is a new beginning. Like wake up in the morning, fucking yesterday was yesterday. Is there a lesson I could have learned from it? Okay. Let's retain that and fucking, you know, discard the rest and move on. Um, and move on if it's, um, but I, I do, I do want to this, I'm taking these baby steps with this new Instagram account to kind of come back on, on my terms and still maintain these relationships. Because I will say that Instagram has been, I would not be sitting here with you all if, if not for Instagram, if not for that first fucking sunset pick I took in goddamn Afghanistan and fucking filtered the shit out of, I wouldn't be sitting here having these conversations and having these opportunities and getting those messages of encouragement from so many, from so many people. And I don't want, I don't want to lose that. And I, frankly, it is, it, it's another family to me. We, we could talk about knowing people in real life and bullshit and whatever. I hadn't met you or Sean or Katie in person until fucking yesterday, but you're my family, period. Um, and as long as you're not showing your butthole. You start doing that. Listen, motherfucker. It's weird. We can't fucking support that. Me and Sean have talked about this behind closed doors with Kate. We just can't support that if you're going to do that. It's blue knot or not. I'm blue uh, not or not K N O T. Um, it, closing thoughts. My my closing thoughts. You know, I I didn't know I was doing this for people. <laughs> we had no idea when I drove up to Leapers Fork, Tennessee, that I would be sitting here doing doing this today with you. Um, and but I came up here because I was hurting this last week. You know, I was hurting with loss, and I spoke to Sean and this. I have had an open invite to come up here to the Vigilance Elite headquarters for, you know, for months now. But I don't execute because I don't want to dump my problems on somebody else and they're busy people and they have all this going on and I'll just be a burden. And I had to fucking flush that shit this week and be there's a place of support and strength and encouragement that I can go to. There is a fucking grid square <laughs> and a vector for me to get to, to refill my fucking tank and get my head right again. And that's why I'm sitting here with you right now. And, uh, it's, it's an incredible thing. And I hope that we can continue to, um, build these relationships that we all have. And, um, it, it gives me goosebumps again. Cause, um, I mean, it's, it's just a miracle and it's a, and it's a blessing and I'm not a fucking miracle and blessing chick. Um, and I hope that, um, you know, I hope that the person that needs to hear what I have to say, hears it before, before it's too late. So, Thank you so much, Emily, for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Mike. I... We love you. Vigilance Elite loves you. Phil Krauss loves you. We, we 
you're, you're here. You're part of it. So look forward to seeing what you have to do in the future with the book and everything else. If you're a publisher, fuck, that's a hard fucking undertaking, man. If you're hit us up, please communicate to us because if uh, anybody's story needs to be told, your story needs to be told. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you, Mike. Thank you.